Say, guys, I wonder if you'd mind recording a couple of promos for us. Well, like what? Uh, maybe you could say, nobody rocks like Bill and Marty on KBBL. Well, we don't know that, do we? What if somebody rocks as good as you? Or better. I mean, <laughs> we don't want to look stupid. Okay, we can respect that. How about, rock-a-doodle-doo, you're listening to Bill and Marty. Yeah, sure. Okay. Right. Yeah, that's good, yeah. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpsons fans brought to you by ThatShelf.com. Each week, we take a movie parodied on The Simpsons. Maybe it was The Simpsons that introduced us to the film. Or maybe when we finally saw it, we realized, hey, that's where that Simpson joke came from. Regardless, each week we pick one that one of us hasn't seen or hasn't seen in a while, watch it, and come together to discuss. I'm your host, Adam Scholes, and joining me as always is the David St. Hubbins to my Nigel Tufnell, my co-host, Nate Storing. How are you today, bud? I'm pretty good, I guess. You know, it's uh, it's only Tuesday and it's already been a long week, but here we are. <laughs> that's that. Where's your, usually you throw in like a movie reference I, in I your know, response. I know, I could Okay. Think of one. Okay. I'm, I'm clearly enough. not as good at improvising as I got one. I tonight be you're this. gonna. Are you gonna rock us tonight? There you go. Tonight you're gonna rock us. Okay. Perfect. Anyway. Okay. We'll just do a loud move on as quickly as possible then, uh, because you know what, we, Spinal Tap has three sort of leads, and today we have our third lead. Joining us is our Derek Smalls, if you will, film scholar and that shelf contributor Marco Georgich. Welcome to the show, Marco. Thank you. I guess I am kind of looking like Harry Shearer these days. Very <laughs> rough and very uh, mustachioed and haired up. But you are wearing a shirt and not not a like a. a oh, that's a, underneath a, a, the harness. Okay, okay, okay. Leather daddy oh, fair, fair, perfect, <laughs> beautiful. Well, if it wasn't clear from our intro this week, we watched Rob Reiner's 1984 mock you documentary. This is Spinal Tap. You might remember it from such Simpson episodes as season three's The Auto Show. But before we dig into the film, Marco, we always like to start with talking about the simpsons and since you're you know new to the show we'd love to sort of get into your relationship with the simpsons when did you discover it are you one of those people like us who've been watching it forever and it's like seeped into your subconscious or uh, what's your story there oh it has seeped it is deep <laughs> uh yeah i was one of those kids where like the simpsons was taboo in the household oh, and yeah, so yeah, yeah. and yet somehow i managed to watch nine or 12 episodes a day every day <laughs> for about i don't know eight or nine years when it was on at five and five thirty and six and <laughs> yep. then eight and then eight thirty yep. and then nine and then mm-hmm. nine thirty and then the repeat of those two episodes at, at eleven yep. and eleven thirty yep. and so yeah it was funny it wasn't until i was much older that my parents realized that the simpsons were a satire and not <laughs> <laughs> kind of celebrating boorishness but were making fun of it uh and now they think it's hilarious and they think it accurately depicts what america is wow that's a big turnaround most kids don't have that Huge. story of their parents coming all the way around and being like oh i get it now which is kind of funny because when i was in middle school my parents bought me maybe even junior school they bought me a t-shirt with homer and a beer and it said kids you tried your best and failed miserably the lesson is never try Try. like they bought me that t-shirt which is they probably got it at like spencer's gifts or one of those kind of um yeah t-shirt kiosks at square one or something but yeah it's it's funny that they would buy us stuff like that and let us play the simpsons video game but we kind of technically weren't allowed to watch the show even though again we always did both me and my brother he's also a huge fan and uh we have been ever since we were very young it is funny though we've sort of talked about this a bunch obviously not growing up in the states i don't know but like 
growing up in the 90s in Canada, like you said, there were just these blocks of Simpsons reruns. Right. And you Absolutely. could just, before DVD era even, you could still like consume hours and hours of Simpsons content. Hours. And I And I don't know if that was the case in the States. Like, I'd be really interested to talk to like American yeah. teenagers from the 90s. And like, obviously, the show was like a cultural icon as it was airing live. But I don't know if it had the same like obsessive run like it did up here. I, but it is interesting because I feel like everybody I know from sort of I assume we're all of the same era and age all mm-hmm. have this similar touchstone of like, yeah, it wasn't just like watching it on Sunday nights. It was watching it like every day at five o'clock on CBC. Things. Like, yeah. And that's the thing. What's unique about The Simpsons is it was on so many different networks. Right. Yeah. So I don't understand how so, all these networks were paying for syndication. It was like CBC channel three whatever that was at the time teletoon Mm -hmm. box Mm -hmm. the comedy network like it was on five different channels or four different channels every single day and so obviously i consumed hundreds of hours and can quote and know the episodes (laughs) up to like you know season 13 14 that era where yeah 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 yeah. uh, yeah, which is kind of where your your show yeah uh, that's sort of where we taper off yeah Yeah, exactly i'd say that's longer than many people who kind of uh tapped out at well season 10 or 11 so there you go (laughs) yeah somewhere around the like early 2000s was when now i catch an episode here and there and sometimes they're really funny and sometimes they're not So I guess my next question then is sort of like, because the whole premise of our show is that The Simpsons sort of influenced Nate and my relationship with pop culture and with sort of like classic cinema, especially. Would you say that that's sort of the case for you? Is Do you oh, have lots of these experiences of like, I, I saw the parody and then saw the movie and I was like, oh, wait a minute. Like, and can you think of an example that comes to mind? Oh, absolutely. So many of them like, Citizen Kane definitely saw yep. the the Bobo episode before <laughs> Citizen, like years and years before, obviously. Mm-hmm. Spinal Tap as well. I had no idea they were a real band until I was in university or something. Yeah. Um, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, yeah, that's the one for me that yeah. really sort of, I didn't even know it existed. But just, con- again, when I finally saw it, I was like, oh my God, the amount of references on The Simpsons is just like <laughs> obscene. Like, it's crazy. And now I have a poster right here on the wall next to me. It's not a <laughs> Simpsons poster, but it's the 2001. A lot of it also came from the Halloween episodes from the Trios mm. of Horror. Sure. Uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, yep. the uh, Francis Ford Coppola version, which is basically a full-on riff. And in that segment, there's also the Lost Boys, Terror at 40,000 Feet, or whatever the Twilight Zone episode is with the gremlin on mm-hmm. the side. Um, you know, the list could go on and on. King Kong, obviously, which you folks did an episode yep. on a few uh, <laughs> a little while back. And I had that Simpsons book that had all the kind of like fun facts inside of like all the movie oh, references yeah, 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 which, yeah it's yeah. literally sitting behind me <laughs> there, yeah. if you look this little that red thing there is the the giant oh, yeah, yeah. i can see mine right over there yeah the it weighs more than me i think uh, but and, and it, yeah you know it was full of all the it was chock full of references and breaking it down and telling you where these things came from hmm. even something as simple as the one with the substitute teacher where dustin hoffman comes and they have the miss Krabappel leg and you're like right, oh, that's yeah, from yeah. the graduate you know things like that in retrospect you're you remember from the simpsons more so than even the first time you watch the movie you remember mm-hmm. it from the simpsons and totally. that happens to this day to this day i'll be like oh my gosh this was 
parodied on The Simpsons 27 years ago or whatever <laughs> it is. So, Yeah, sometimes it's funny when it goes in reverse of like you forget about, at least for, you know, some of those earlier seasons or whatever, you forget that there was a parody and then you see the film and then you go back and you re like I've been rewatching old episodes for the show or whatever. And then sometimes, yeah, like you'll see that thing and be like, oh yeah, like that's a movie reference and now I know the movie, it's like the cat chasing its own tail or whatever kind of thing. <laughs> right. and, so. and I mean, sometimes it's also not just like the simpsons episodes that are based on in parody but even small things like the one where <laughs> sorry i'm laughing but it's the fugitive reference where millhouse has to jump <laughs> off the thing and then he goes like i didn't do it he's like i don't care <laughs> millhouse just jumps off and you're like oh, i didn't see the fugitive for the first time till literally like three months ago yeah and yet that and i'm like no no that's the funny scene from the simpsons where millhouse jumps to yeah. the dam <laughs> yeah it does it does have a tendency to ruin there are definitely like tense moments in certain movies that have been ruined because i know the simpsons joke yeah, yeah. it can kind of go either way with those parodies where sometimes it's you know it's just this moment of recognition but you're like oh wow now i like get this thing and it's a big cultural mm -hmm. thing and then other times you're like wow this movie doesn't like for me i watched the fugitive recently for the first time and i was kind of like mm, eh, whatever two out of five yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. it didn't, oh, I, didn't really I, I, do I, a lot for me but that scene i was like oh yeah all right of course and it, yeah, it definitely kind of steals the thunder of that scene. Like I can just hear Millhouse's voice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. Like, I didn't do it. <laughs> well, I mean, that's sort of how I felt watching Thelma and Louise. Like we sort of yeah. we discussed oh, yeah. it in our episode of like how the ending of The Simpsons is a better ending than the Thelma and Louise ending, which is like even because it's oh, yeah, just where they fall in the garbage. <laughs> yeah, like it's just so it, it that's sort of been the fun thing about this show is getting to experience some of these things and see how The Simpsons has sort of colored our views or vice versa. So the auto show season three, episode 22, original air date, April 23rd, 1992. So 30 years ago, written by Jeff Martin and directed by Wes Archer. And to call this a parody is maybe a bit of a stretch. It's not really a parody of Spinal Tap, but Spinal Tap is featured. Bart and Milhouse go to see Spinal Tap in concert. They have a bunch of funny comments. I was trying to figure out like how this sort of maybe came about, and I listened to the commentary, mm -hmm. and they don't really get into it, but... This was in 1992, which was the same year that Spinal Tap put out an album called Break Like the Wind. And will our voices be heard? Or will they break like the wind? So I imagine, like, maybe it's sort of like a synergy kind of situation. Well, and um, Harry Shearer, right? I well, mean, yeah, and Harry Shearer is Harry obviously... Harry was probably like, look, I have this thing coming out, you know, can <laughs> we just, you know... Give yeah, it a little exactly. nudge. You scratch my back, I'll bring two members of Spinal Tap. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. and then I was reading up trivia on the Break Like the Wind album, and I just thought this was really funny. I don't know if you guys remember, like, the 90s and the packaging of CDs and how there was this thing oh, yeah. called the long box. And yeah, so yeah. the CD would be like this, but then it would be in a box that so was like this. Costco always did this, and my dad mm. bought a lot of CDs at Costco. So apparently, originally, the CD was packaged in an 18-inch extra long box <laughs> as a satire against the controversial packaging policy of long boxes, which was increasingly con criticized as unnecessary and wasteful. So just the idea of an 18-inch. <laughs> I mean, that's very, very Spinal Tap thing to do. God, so that's ridiculous. Like, I have records here just thinking of six more inches on a record. That, yeah. Oh, my gosh. 
Yeah, I, I can't even imagine. So basically, they go to this Spinal Tap concert, and the radio announcers from KBBL are interviewing Spinal Tap. And there's the great line about how they started doing really well after the Berlin Wall fell. Um, <laughs> well, after the Berlin Wall fell, our record started selling on the dismal side of the Iron Curtain. And naturally, that gave us a boost. We're very big in Bulgaria. And uh, what's his name? Yadagaria. Hungaria. Yeah, whatever. I can't think of anyone who's benefited more from the death of communism than us. Well, maybe the people who actually live in the communist countries. Oh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. And then this is a funny thing that I noticed because I had just I had watched the film and listened to the commentaries and all this stuff. There's the line where they talk about they just bought their own soccer team. Right, and right. to my ears, it sounds like David or the Michael McKean character is speaking it, but it's animated so that Nigel, the Christopher Guest character, is saying it. So I don't know. This might be like a 30-year-later goof that only super nerds like me have noticed. But Yeah, well, and, and from what I hear, Christopher Guest was kind of a pain in the ass on the show. Like on the commentary, they talk about they kind of allude to it without saying it quite out loud, but they're they're sort of talking around it. So I wonder if they literally just got Michael McKean to say a line and then dropped it in. Well, apparently this is not uncommon that funny people just because they're funny on screen doesn't mean that they have great senses of humor in real life. So I mean, even Harry Shearer kind of has a bit of a reputation of being um, prickly. a little prickly, Salty. a little prickly, yeah, for yeah, sure. a little prickly. So, mm-hmm. um, there's a couple other great lines in this that I love. When the the running gag of wh- when they turn up the house lights, um, that joke always <laughs> makes me laugh, and I've quoted it in multiple occasions. Uh, Could we turn up the house lights, please? That was the cue to turn up the house lights, so we can tell the audience they're the sixth member of the freaking group. Nate and I both sort of come from a theater background. We went to high school. We were drama majors. Yeah. So okay. And so whenever I was on a, a stage during tech or whatever, that was definitely a line that I would start shouting out um, to to the tech. We're just crew. trying to bring a little tiny thrill into the great little lawyers. <laughs> I still say my vision all the time just like oh my vision and it falls <laughs> in the water it's like the splish splash so like I, I, literally every line that they say is just unreal and this is the first time they didn't improvise which must oh, have also yeah. been kind of and it's actually not only the first but the only time in the history of spinal tap that they had to read lines and that they weren't improvising wow. um, and it would have also been lines that they didn't write too exactly. so not, which yeah. is probably especially weird for them so like <laughs> it's one thing to read lines it's another thing to read like somebody else's dialogue but i will say jeff martin or whoever in the staff wrote their dialogue they did a really good job of capturing the sort of like absolutely insanity of their like what they say like they do they do a pretentious and incredibly stupid yeah exactly well it's the the line from the movie there's a very very fine line between clever and stupid so the rest of the episode i mean they're basically in that first five minutes of the episode and then there's a quick little cameo by them at the midpoint when their tour buses (laughs) run off a cliff apparently that was the that was one of the challenges with christopher guest was that they were trying to get him to say Ow, my strumming hand when they crash. <laughs> and he refused to do it. <laughs> that's such a great line. Yeah. Why would you but he was like, no, I, that's a dumb line. I don't want to read it. But it, it also shows, I love that scene because it shows how oblivious rock stars are. Because in the thing, they're like, oh, it was a good show last night. Yeah, it was yeah. yeah. So like, they all think it was a good show. They played for 20 minutes and caused a riot. And they're like, oh, it was a good show. It was last good. Night. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe for Spinal Tap, it was a good show. Yeah, yeah they didn't true. play an airfield or an Air Force. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, yeah, no, none, and their drummer didn't spontaneously combust. So they're, you know, it's, <laughs> it's true. There's that. 
you know, in the long and short of it, it might have been okay. But yeah, there's just a couple other favorite moments, like the line of when when uh, Bart corrects Otto to tell him that Homer didn't call him a bum, he called him a sponge. And he's so much more offended by that. (laughs) That, by the way, is to this day one of my all-time favorite Simpsons lines when he goes, Sponge, does this look like something a sponge would do? Oh, you got a good Otto. I was going to say, that's a very good... (laughs) Otto Man, of course. Um, (laughs) That has to be like, just like his, he's incensed by this idea that Homer Simpson called him a sponge and then his rage, so he can staple it to Homer Simpson's big ball the head <laughs> that little section unbelievable it's so good best it's moment so good. of auto for auto on the show yeah they don't do a lot with auto on the show <laughs> no, usually there aren't very many auto-centric episodes so it's nice <laughs> well to they get, even see they sort of allude to that in the commentary yeah. they're like uh yeah, we, we don't annoying. really. Oh, his voice is annoying, and we realize that very. I mean, they do have the episode where he marries Becky, and Marge thinks she's usurping her, but that's the only other like auto-heavy episode I can think of. Because yeah, he's not he's not one of the characters that you're sort of jonesing for more of. He he kind of works <laughs> just in like small little doses for little jokes like zeppelin rules like in and homer the... palooza yes, <laughs> yes, yes <exactly>. the shoes. <laughs> don't worry we won't eat you um i always wondered is he supposed to be slash like is that kind of who they're ripping the big curly hair he's into metal he plays guitar yeah like, is there pr- a bit of that influence in there i this is like yeah. you know throwing it out to the class uh i think I, it's I just supposed if... to be like a metalhead kind of like a yeah hesher. just like a vibe of those those guys because they that definitely was a look <laughs> and a vibe in that era like which again people were probably trying to be like oh i want to look like slash um, right, but, <laughs> it smells like Otto's jacket. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> and then one of my other absolute favorite moments in this is when Bart does his Marge impression, uh, right? Which, <laughs> when he's like, "Mom, I had a feeling you would think you would say this, so I took the liberty of recording a conversation." <laughs> what conversation? Mom. Can Otto live in a garage for as long as he wants? He sure can! <laughs> Which is just like, I have this running gag that all of my friends give me grief over of whenever I quote my mother, I do a Marge Simpson impression. And my mom doesn't sound anything like Marge. But I'll be like, oh yeah, my, oh, my mom, you know, she was like, Adam, you have to come home this weekend. And like, to this day, my wife was <laughs> really like, good Marge, she too. doesn't sound anything like Marge. But to me, it's just like, that's the mother voice is doing a bad Marge impression. So, so that's that, that moment is really Homer's reaction to that. Homer's reaction. Where he's like, "Marge, how could you?" <laughs> he's like so shocked that she would do this. I, I tried to take notes of kind of like good moments in this episode, and I have about forty-five. It's just like zinger after zinger after zinger. Like even during the concert when the devil def- deflates yes. <laughs> filled up with air it's very evil and impressive <laughs> we salute you, you our half inflated dark, dark lord <laughs> oi <laughs> <laughs> Harry Shearer's characters in the shadows because the spotlight is in the wrong place. <laughs> yes. right. And then he has to like walk into the spotlight because yeah. yeah, it just shows how kind of incompetent not only they are, but their 
crew is and the pyro guy exploding and then the wind machine like it's just like one after another of like this is the worst band in the world but it's so funny Definitely. because watching this i was like and they actually allude to it in the commentary when homer comes back and is like hey like what happened to you playing the guitar and in the commentary they're like another one of those things where we start an idea and we just sort of fizzle out and never go anywhere with it which we started doing more and more in the later seasons but the thing I would say about this is this definitely has that sort of like early Simpsons vibe of like it's totally meandering and it's just like there really is no plot to this episode. It's like, no, there's a Spinal yeah. Tap concert. Otto kind of moves in and then kind of like I feel like they get better at the act one doesn't relate to act two and three. Act two and three have a very sort of clear ABC plot line. Whereas this is just kind of like it just kind of waffles around, not in a bad way, but it just has that feeling of like. You can tell that they're still trying to find their voice and their style and how they're going to structure their narratives. Like it has a very early season two, season three era structure to it that because most of the episodes Nate and I have been covering recently, for whatever reason, have been season seven and eight, like sort of the Oakley and Weinstein years to go back to an Al Jean, Mike Reese era episode i was like oh yeah the show feels very different at this point yeah it almost feels like a compilation of jokes and Mm -hmm. this kind of loose plot around it because again i have all these moments but when you actually think about the episode why did they need spinal tab technically because bart could have wanted to play the guitar for a any number of other reasons. reasons. Yeah, exactly. Right. Any number of reasons. And so, yeah, there's a lot of really good quotes and funny moments. But, yeah, it's that first part of Spinal Tab almost does feel a little bit like an advertisement for the new Spinal Tap <laughs> album coming out. It's a very extended advertisement. Which is funny um, because, like, nobody remembers <laughs> that album. Like, it's it, no. it, the show no. has aged much better than Spinal Tap's career. But I guess part of it, too, is, like, this is also one of the last episodes of the season. And I know in previous right. commentary tracks, they talk about how when they get closer and closer to the end of the season, they're just so burnt out. And this was back when they were still, mm-hmm. like... Some of those seasons were 25 episodes long, which is insane yeah. to think today. So I imagine that there is a part of them that are just like, we don't have any gas left in the tank. We'll just do a <laughs> series of jokes and pad time with bringing in Spinal Tap. So I don't know, but that's kind of how I felt. So, And yeah. then, Nate, you found you found something really, really interesting. Tell us what yeah. you were able to discover. So in this episode, before they go to the show... Marge is kind of like a little concerned about whether the spinal taps, as she calls them, will <laughs> will play too loud. And there's a great moment where she's she's saying this and it cuts to Homer's point of view. And you just hear the ringing in his ears and he can't hear what yeah, she's saying. <laughs> and uh, on the commentary, they were like, this is a good joke here. <laughs> what Marge is saying is actually pretty funny, if I recall. Oh, I remember really? it took us a long time to write it, and then we yeah. mixed it down so nobody could hear it. And apparently, literally last year, an editor found a way to actually process the sound so that you can recover that line. And it's, it's you know, I don't know, it's, it's that funny, but basically she says, well, all right, but make sure they don't pick up on any of the band's attitudes towards women or liquor or religion or politics or really anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they never come back to Homer having tinnitus ever. Right. No, nope. of course not. I, I don't think that ever comes back of him having tinnitus. <laughs> no, no, it's a one off joke, but it's a one solid joke. joke. And it's so funny because when I was watching the episode on, I think I watched it on Friday or whatever, I was like, 
she's clearly saying something. I wonder if there's a way to like make out what she's saying. And yeah. then Nate, you sent me that tweet literally the next day. And I was like, <laughs> what are the chances? So. But amazing that it took until now, like literally no one had done yeah. that for 30 years. <laughs> and yeah, then and then someone just decided to do it i'm sure the technology's gotten a lot better too to kind of yeah with all this ai stuff that's out there that's probably part of it they were finally able to to clean it up so yeah homer definitely has some really good moments in this episode i mean when mm -hmm. he's singing spanish flea and the swat <laughs> team is coming in and he is completely oblivious to that and i think my favorite scene in the whole episode is when marge is like we should get bard a guitar and he says we already have a guitar and he has the one that's like doo, 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 doo. the pop goes the weasel and you just see maggie's arms reach up into the shot to reach for the guitar it's like such simple innocent and really good visual humor somebody said like maggie should reach up towards the guitar right and then he like hits it on her crib and then hits himself on the head yeah like, like you know just <laughs> such like such simple stuff that it builds him as a character of being kind of like well, it's, it's, everything's cool everything's yeah. fine and then we also totally. get the flashback where he's like some of the best moments of my life were <laughs> yes. in the back seat of a car and he's just by himself eating a whole pizza right ah uh, man been there uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's one of those classic jokes that like as a kid watching the show i didn't get and then right. as a teenager watching the show i was like oh and now as an adult watching the show i'm like i can't believe they did that yeah. like, so one joke though that i totally didn't remember and now you know being an astute observer of pop culture myself uh <laughs> that auto when he picks up the guitar and starts playing Freebird, yeah he yeah. plays it for so long that they're late for school right <laughs> like, even something like that where you're like you think that that cut was you know sending you forward an hour but really just sends them forward maybe 10 15 minutes which is still incredibly long for any song yeah to and they paid for the rights to get that song too. that's they, the other thing awesome. to remember that's perfect yeah that's awesome <laughs> well and on the the spanish flea thing on the commentary track dan castellaneta is one of the people featured and at the end he starts singing spanish flea from memory do we have to pay for this? <laughs> you do. <laughs> and so we hid. I hid inside, inside a doggy from Madrid. Doggy from Madrid. <laughs> That's all I know. That's all I know. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you just so heard long. a big blank space, that meant we couldn't clear Dan singing Spanish Flea. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's so great. And, and they said, like, that cost them a lot of money. And I think Mike Reese said, like, one of the writers was friends with, like, the timpani player or something right. in the, in Herb Albert's Herb band. Albert, so, right. Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. how they were able to get the rights. It was like they had to call in a favor, but yeah, it's, and, and it's and a I, great song. <laughs> I would be remiss if I didn't bring up Bart's fantasy sequence. <laughs> Uh, I mean, like, yeah. me fans of stupid pigs. It's, like, so grim and so dark, even compared to Spinal Tap, the movie, which obviously goes yeah. into some of that stuff, like, the keyboard player in Spinal Tap is always on something, even when he's getting, like, <laughs> electroshock treatment while playing keyboards. But, like, that is one of the grimmest things I've ever seen about music. And, of course, I said slag off. Right. <laughs> like, 
I remember that scene where he's like lying on the bed and his hair's all disheveled and he's kind of like surrounded by cigarettes and alcohol bottles. When COVID first happened, I was like, one month in quarantine. And it was just that image. I like put that up on some form of social media to be like, yeah, this is how I feel. Slag off, man. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and then of course he's he... just like, cool. <laughs> yeah, it's a response. Cool. But I also love that for some reason he's a British rock star. Like right. he grows for, because of course he's spinal he tap. Had, you know. Yeah, Which, exactly. But he's British on stage, but then he's not British backstage because <laughs> right. he's like, me fans are stupid pigs. And then backstage, it's just a regular Bart yep. voice. Yep. So he's like completely this kind of like performative thing of when you're on stage, <laughs> you're one person. And when you're off stage. And Milhouse has his roadie. Like, right. it's just. No, no, he's his bass player. Right. Oh, he's his bass player. Okay. Well, they're even better. He changed, man. It used to be about the music. <laughs> I said slag off. Bottle smashes. And then the like the chord in the back is just like. I mean, like, cool. like Bart, oh. Bart does have, like, a whole weird thing about secretly being a little British or something. Like, there's that. And then he also yep. quotes, like, Alex from uh, Clockwork Orange. Oh, yeah. Yep. Right? <laughs> and and then also, My Fair Lady. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, when I was a 10-year-old, I always want, like, wanted to be, well, I still want to be British, but I always walked <laughs> yeah. around doing a little British accent. So, like, maybe it's just yeah, something about 10-year-old Once again, boys. you're a theater kid. I don't think Bart is a theater kid. <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough. He didn't go through a Sherlock Holmes and James Bond phase mm. like I did, so. Well, unless there's anything else you wanted to cover about the episode, gentlemen, I feel like we can move on to uh, the the main subject of this evening, which is, of course... This is Spinal Tap. So, Marco, one of the things we always like to do is we have one of us sum up the movie in a sentence. I realize, you know, we're putting you on the spot a little bit, but how would you sum up This is Spinal Tap in a sentence? Ooh. Uh, okay, I got a good one. Maybe. Okay. A lovable, underachieving band of metal cliches tries to do good. Kind of does. Nice. <laughs> Me? That, I think that sentence had a semicolon in it. <laughs> yeah, question mark. Uh, and then I could add a couple of things just as like, you know, an addendum. It's like uh, stuffed crotch, 18-inch Stonehenge, Druids, none more black, Japan, 11, Rob Reiner. Yeah. Your sentence had like a footnote. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Note. Yeah. <laughs> An addendum. I, I'm a scholar, right? I have to have yeah. like 27 end notes to every sentence. <laughs> no, of course. I'll be able to course. download my notes uh, later. <laughs> yeah, this this podcast is going to have footnotes and uh, bibliography, <laughs> all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, Marco, what is your background with this movie? Did you When did you first see it? Did you see this before the Simpson episode, the Simpson episode before the movie? Oh, when you saw the, the movie? Like, yeah, and when yeah, you saw it. Simpsons. So when you saw it, were, did you remember them from the Simpson episode, or was it just sort of like independent? Like, what's your oh no, abso- what's your absolutely. history? I didn't see it till I was in probably undergrads, and definitely knowing the Simpsons episode before, like we like picked the movie knowing that it had been parodied in the Simpsons. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, again, like at the time when I first watched it as a in the Simpsons episode, I know that it was referenced, if not parodied, as you mentioned earlier, the connection of Harry Shearer was never a thing. Like sure. right. some of the voices of the people who were on the Simpsons, they didn't materialize as real people till I was a lot older. Uh, like I love the birdcage and like Azari's <laughs> in the birdcage, like totally. never yep. made that connection. And Harry Shearer was in this. And so like, I'm a huge 
fan of metal. Like <laughs> I, I, I okay. like, papers about metal. I go to metal shows. I cover metal for Exclaim Magazine, which I also write for. So mm-hmm. I like go to shows and cover music <laughs> and cover records, which, you know, for people who know me, know me. But for anyone to see me otherwise would be like, wow, that guy... <laughs> That was too much about metal for someone with glasses. Um, <laughs> so, uh, like, we were obviously big into metal even in university, and this is kind of like a um, rite of passage for anyone who's into metal to see because, again, mm. there's so few movies that are kind of both satirical and making fun of metal, but also completely sincere about why they're mm-hmm. doing it and how they're yeah. doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of metal movies either take themselves really seriously <laughs> or they're full out comedies. But there's moments in this film that are pretty serious and kind of rough and, you know, yeah. th- that whole mockumentary cringe humor, awkward humor is so present when like we'll obviously talk about some of these scenes, but there's scenes where they're arguing and fighting where you almost can't tell are they joking? Because this doesn't seem yeah, fun. Right. This sounds like they're fighting for real. And the acting is brilliant, which, again, you wouldn't expect from a film that's supposed to be kind of dumb because it's about metal. But I always <laughs> challenge anyone who thinks that metal is dumb. I think metal can be pretentious and can be kind <laughs> of like self-serving and really performative. But I also think metal is fun and metal can be funny and not always have to take itself so seriously. And it, I kind of love that they went with metal and parodied like hard rock and all these bands and all these different documentaries and all these different bands i have my own thoughts as to who they might be parodying Mm -hmm. they've talked about who they saw and kind of who they focused on but there's also people in there who they never mentioned who i kind of think they might be aping a bit but yeah i I basically came to it as like we like metal we should watch spinal tap and we did i never i've never seen it in theaters which i think would be really fun yeah because i'm sure the sound would be amazing but yeah it was just kind of like you know university a little stoned, a little drunk, big old bag of <laughs> ruffle chips watching this is Spinal Tap. I went to school in McGill, you know, mm-hmm. seven months of, of winter. <laughs> you you, you got you to fill out the time somehow. And uh, Spinal Tap was definitely one of the films I watched with my roommates at the time just to kind of, you know, scratch that one off the list. Because totally. totally necessary if you're really into comedy or metal or, again, mockumentaries. A lot of people claim that this is kind of like the start of that genre and this style of filmmaking which is you know 40 years on yeah 40 years on it's still one of the most popular ways to make television make films i mean i'll argue that even stuff like found footage kind of comes Mm, from this obviously any of those tv shows that grew hugely popular like the office and parks and rec and all of those obviously come yeah it's kind of it's funny how most modern comedies nowadays like basically use the mockumentary form as a means to like mostly sitcoms but even some like features as well but that's just how sitcoms are now like, well like I, mean, I think about like modern family is a perfect example where it's like modern family is basically like a multi-cam sitcom but they're using the language of Spinal Tap yeah. to tell yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, whereas, like, I feel like The Office plays more into the idea of it actually being a documentary. But, like, right. Modern Family never actually touches the premise. Like, it never says that this is some kind of documentary. It just right. uses the style of it. It's really interesting. Yeah. Well, and Parks and Rec is the same thing, too. Like, True. Parks and Rec is obviously riffing off of The Office because it's yeah. the same creative team. But, like, there's no... There's no payoff of like why is this in the documentary form where w- the office was, and it's certainly the British office like made 
very clever use of the form. Probably the best moment in, I guess it's the Christmas special when Tim and Dawn, when Tim confesses his love for her and like turns off his microphone and then all of a sudden you can't hear anything because the microphone's off. And like, it's this really clever recognition of like oh yeah this is a documentary like that's how it would play it so that's sort of my thesis for this whole thing and we're gonna get into it but my whole thesis (laughs) is that i think this is the best example of a fake documentary maybe ever like i think it's the one film example that like it never breaks character anyway we'll get into that so but before we do (laughs) nate how did you come into spinal tap like was it through me or did you see it of your own volition or what right so i came into it through the movies of christopher guest okay interesting so i probably the first christopher guest movie i saw i think was best in show Right. And then my brother, who's always been... The, so my brother's a musician, so kind of relevant okay, to this. of course. And he's six years older than me, and he's always been a little bit ahead of me in terms of my own taste. And so it's like, you know, <laughs> when I was 11, he introduced me to Radiohead, and I was like, what is this shit? And then, like, a couple years later, I was like, oh, I get it now. Yeah, and, exactly. And so I feel like movies, it's been a similar sort of thing. So, like, you know, when I saw Best in Show, I was like, oh, yeah, this is really funny. And then... He was like, oh, well, you know, you should really see Waiting for Guffman, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. And so so like it was that that was sort of my track as I started there and then kind of worked my way backwards in time. OK, interesting. Um, yeah. And I don't remember when exactly I saw this is Spinal Tap, but it would have been probably late high school or early university. Right. I'm not yeah, sure. But and it was almost certainly with you because you're such a, a fan yeah, probably. And, uh, yeah. and the other thing that I saw before <laughs> before I saw this movie is a little film called Danger Jameson. <laughs> I was hoping this wasn't going to come up, but I had a <laughs> I had a sinking suspicion it would. So which uh, um, which was Adam's own mockumentary feature that that he uh, made the great long lost film. <laughs> yeah, that he made feature is is maybe a stretch. That's true. It's not, not that long, but do- uh, documentary mockumentary that he made with our good friend uh, Bill. It was sort of a send-up of This is Spinal Tap, more or less. Except yeah, it was, Bill actually did look like Sting. Yeah, uh, Slash, you mean. Slash. Yes, he, Sorry, Slash. Yes, he was, Sting, I mean, God. it would have been better if he looked like Sting. Yeah, we basically, it was for our ComTech class, and we were tasked with creating a documentary about an issue in the school that mattered the most to us. And Bill and I said, no, no, we're going we're gonna to make our own Spinal Tap movie. And we did. And uh, the good news is our teacher didn't fail us. And I'm pretty sure we got like an A or an A plus because I mean, we put a lot of heart and soul into the it. The production value um, was good. I mean, yeah, you know? no, exactly. And like we, we worked really hard. It's just like we did not follow the assignment at all. He would have been well within his rights to fail us. <laughs> that but, teacher's uh, just at home like... This is yeah. good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, oh, these kids are awesome. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, well, I guess that leads to how did I discover Spinal Tap? Yes. Um, and that's why I was asking it because I introduced Bill to Spinal, and he uh, he's listening right now. So hi, Bill. His favorite band in high school, I think, was Rush and Kiss. So he was sort of not quite metal, but like, although I guess Kiss is is Kiss considered metal or glam rock? I guess it's kind of metal adjacent. Yeah. <laughs> or so, disco. Um, yeah, or disco. <laughs> yeah, depending on what. Yeah. So. I just knew that he would like love this movie. And so I was like, and I remember like we were sitting in t- ComTech class and I was just reading quotes from the IMDb page to him. And so like he went home and rented it that weekend. And then I was like, oh, I really should revisit this. And I went home and rented it. And then it was just like for that year, we were just obsessed with Smile Tap. But 
The funny thing is that the subtitle for the Springfield Googleplex should also be AKA movies Adam saw because of the AFI top 100 because right. <laughs> Spinal Tap was one of the movies that either because of the top 100 or the top 100 comedies. I can't remember which list. Yeah, it was on the 100 years, 100 laughs probably. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I saw this and they played the clips and they played, of course, the clip they showed was probably this goes to 11 and then the awesome Hello movie. Cleveland <laughs> can't find the stage thing, which I was just, I was in stitches. I thought this was so funny. And then I rented the movie and I was probably I would have been like 10 or 11. And I just was like confounded by it. I had no idea what I was watching. There was tons of swearing, which at the time would have been like kind of off putting for me as like a <laughs> not even a teenager yet. I don't think I finished the movie because I just didn't get it. And then in high school, revisited it once I kind of like understood what it was supposed to be. And I was like, oh, this thing is brilliant. This is genius so like 11 year old adam very much had the reaction that apparently most of the public did when the movie came out of like what the fuck is this thing what is going on why are they following these people but yeah it's, from high school onward this has been one of my favorite movies and like one that i will throw on and i was saying to marco before we started recording like i've lost track of the number of times that i've seen this movie wow. like i genuinely couldn't tell you it has to be at least like 40 times we'll say for the sake of the joke we'll say at least 11 nice. um but I adore this movie. I know it so well. And like the visual jokes or some, you know, <laughs> puppet show and spinal tap. Like I want that on a t-shirt because that just makes me laugh so hard. So I keep um, telling them to put spinal tap above <laughs> puppet show. <laughs> well, you, they got the big dressing room though. So it's all, it's, oh, it's okay. Oh, guys. Good. The puppets didn't get the dressing room. <laughs> uh, um, so one of the other things we'd love to do on the show is when we when we give the official sort of synopsis of the film, we like to sort of consult not Wikipedia or IMDb. We like to find some sort of like archival synopsis okay. from a unique <laughs> location. And so tonight's plot synopsis comes from the Criterion Collection oh, Laserdisc. Yeah, because I was believe ask, it or get it from Criterion. Believe it or <laughs> not, this film is yeah. in the Criterion Collection, and I I think very much deservedly oh, it's yeah. unfortunately out of print so you can't get a copy of it Ooh, but I it is still technically yeah, yeah, I, don't know. I, don't know. I mean mine DVD is not baby. a baby yeah um <laughs> according to the backside of the laser disc of spinal tap this is what it says <clears throat> in assessing spinal taps place in rock and roll history a part that is from the full page they already occupy in the rockopedia britannicus one has to take into account the extraordinary extent to which well-chronicled events of their lives had entered into rock legend. And what better memento to celebrate these exploits and their sheer dogged persistence than the resuscitation of the watershed rockumentary This Is Spinal Tap. Yes, there were problems with the movie. And yes, the band has since disavowed it, feeling that director Marty DeBerge chose to show only the more embarrassing moments of their ill-fated 1982 Tap Into America tour. On most nights, unenraged Derek Smalls recently told me, I get out of the pod without incident. But why pick nits? As musical documents go, it doesn't get any more raw and authentic than this. To those who would argue that Tap is not shown to its best advantage in this film, I would argue back that the naysayers are just not looking deeply enough. Behind the occasional bickering and the odd spot of rancor, behind the missed opportunities and the cancelled gigs, lies a massive commitment to continuity, to the good old-fashioned joy of just hanging on. 
This is one band that has made it through decades without any of the cushy perks that come with fan adulation, critical raves, or explosive record sales. So maybe the toughness they've acquired weathers the storm of the occasional rejection, has helped tap to develop their peculiar strengths that have led to their legendary, if surprising, longevity. Their ability to hop a moving bandwagon at full speed, to perceive a passing trend just before it peters out, and then to milk it for all it's worth. These are skills that may have come easy for some, but not to the brave men of TAP. As seen in this classic film, Spinal Tap emerge as truly heroic figures from a bygone age, from a time when the surest sign of profoundly awesome band was its ability to trash a hotel room thoroughly and escape without paying for it. No, my friends, they don't make them like this anymore, if they ever did. Slogging their way through rock history and into our hearts, Spinal Tap continues to fill a much-needed void. But hey, as Marty DeBerge said himself, enough of my yakking, let's boogie. <laughs> For a second there, I forgot what movie you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is verbose. Yes, I also sent Nate the DVD cover of the right. Criterion Collection, and it's just like a very short paragraph of like yeah, seminal yeah. mockumentary. 12 yeah. inches of space on a yeah. laser disc. Yeah. 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 There's too to much room. <laughs> this is actually like written by the guy who wrote the like fake inside spinal tap the, biography the or whatever you want to call oh, yeah, it. Yeah. 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 I appreciate, again, that the Criterion Laserdisc is playing into this idea of they're a real band. This is a real movie following them, which is what I appreciate most about the film all these years later. And what I think separates it from what I will call the cheap imitators that come along, including, to some extent, the Christopher Guest movies, which I... I enjoy them, <laughs> but I don't think any of them reach the level that this one does. I think they all they all have their funny moments, but I all they all feel like fake jokey joke comedy movies. Right. Whereas I think the best compliment this film got is that people thought that it was real and were like, "What the fuck <laughs> is this thing? Like, why are they following these idiots instead of a real band?" Like. To me, that shows the power of the filmmaking on display. So, mm-hmm. but we're going to get into all that. So the question, of course, comes down to like, how did this thing come about? Where did this come from? I tucked into the archives and did some digging into the non-fictional history of the fictional band Spinal Tap. <laughs> so it actually has its origins as Lenny and the Squigtones. And now, are either of you familiar with the television series Laverne and Shirley? Oh, I mean, yeah. I, I know of it. That's From a, The okay. Simpsons. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's my knowledge of it. So I guess on that show, there were these characters, Lenny and Squiggy. And Squiggy, I guess it's Squiggy, is played by Michael McKean. Lenny. Or is it the other way around? Lenny is played by Michael McKean. Okay. So on Laverne and Shirley, they formed this band called Lenny and the Squigtones. And then they ended up putting out an album. And on that album, Christopher Guest co-wrote a song or like features on a song and he features as the character yeah. nigel tufnell i think i think he, I think he just so i think he plays the guitar yeah yeah and he, right. but yes, he just yes. uses the that's name it. like as a pseudonym yes. yeah, yeah exactly that's where nigel sort of comes from right and then a few years later there's this sketch tv show called the tv show which is where guest and mckean meet harry shearer and rob reiner And they're doing a sketch called Rock and Roll Nightmare, which was a parody of the show The Midnight Special, which was hosted by Wolfman Jack. Mm. And they brought together this fictional band called Spinal Tap for this little one-off sketch. They start riffing on them over the years, and they want to start developing something more out of it. And they come to the conclusion that they want to make a feature, 
but being the people that they are they're like we can't write a script because generally the way you pitch a movie is you like you write a script and then you deliver the script and then you shop it around and eventually people are like yeah here's your money go make your movie but they're <laughs> like we can't write a script for this like we're improvisers these characters have always been improvised they show up on snl at one point like they're just this is not how they do the bit so instead, what they went and did was they t- they got some money together and they shot a 20-minute demo movie called Spinal Tap, The Final Tour, which is on that out-of-print Criterion disc and thankfully Damn. is also on YouTube. So I took the time to watch it the other day. And what's really, really interesting is that it's it's essentially the movie. It has a bunch of the same beats. Like, they have a bunch of the songs. They're not in the same form and they're not nothing's as polished, but... You get the scene with the metal detector. You get the Stonehenge scene. You get the scene with the limo driver. But all of the jokes are just not quite fully developed. Like, one of my favorite jokes, and I don't know why I think it's so funny, but they show up to the airport and the limo driver is holding up the sign and it says spinal pap and i just for whatever reason i think that's really funny but the joke in the demo version is spine tape which is just not as funny i don't know why it's just not as funny so and then the metal detector gag is instead of it being a cucumber wrapped in tinfoil he takes out a handkerchief filled with like nuts and bolts so that you kind of don't really get the joke right like it it plays much better and then one of my favorite jokes in the entire movie is when nigel is showing off his mock piece and he's going on about how beautiful it is and it's classical music da 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 and then the final button on the scene is that the song is called lick my love pump <laughs> right and the joke works because there's all of this buildup and he's getting into the like classical influences and so like it sounds like it's going to be this really erudite thing and then he no it's this like crass joke in the demo thing it's like 20 seconds of him playing the song sort of talking about it and then he delivers that line so like everything is just not quite as well developed but you can see the bones of what the film will become so it's a very very fascinating thing to watch because like i said especially if you've seen the movie as much as i had like you sort of you get to see the development of it along the way Mm. and then the other thing that's really interesting about all of this and it's gonna come up throughout is how they then ultimately end up financing the movie so they sell it to embassy pictures which i believe was norman lear's company rob reiner had a relationship with norman lear because he wrote all in the family which is what rob reiner starred on and i think he left the show to start his career as a director and this was his first feature but the the actors and the writers they basically had to sell the rights to everything so they sold the the music publishing rights they sold the rights to the character like the this company owned everything The company then folds at some point and is bought by a French conglomerate who was partially owned by L'Oreal, like the cosmetics company. (laughs) Awesome. And so for years, the the rights to Spinal Tap were just kind of like languishing and kind of all over the place. And they didn't really know what was going on. And so in 1992-ish, they wanted to go on tour. But in order to go on tour, they had to get the rights to sing their own songs because they didn't own the rights. (laughs) What they didn't realize is that because it was all tied up in this bureaucracy of like it was owned by seven different French companies that didn't even know that they had it. They probably could have just gone out on tour and nobody would have cared. You know, my old adage of like it's better to beg for forgiveness than ask for permission. They asked for permission and it opened up this whole can of worms. So they basically had to buy back the rights to their songs and to their characters. But in that there was a clause that as long as that they continue to do something new with the characters every like five years, they maintain the rights. Mm. And if you look, 
it's interesting because every five years or so, Spinal yeah. Tap will just randomly appear out of nowhere. <laughs> so they had their Break Like the Wind album. They had their Back from the Dead album in like 2009. In 2000, they had Tapster, a website that was a parody of Napster. They did the Live 8 concert. And then I have to imagine that this upcoming Spinal Tap 2 sequel that's coming out, apparently the rights have all been cleared up, but I don't. I, I have to think that that's part of it. Is that like, yeah. That's why that thing is now happening. Is like, again, they got to renew the rights and make sure that they keep them. So that kind of explains partly why, again, I think this Simpson episode, like why that, A, why that album came out, but B, why they're also showing up on The Simpsons, mm. is that I think part of it had to do with, they're like, we need to do something new so that we can keep the rights <laughs> to our characters. Otherwise, L'Oreal's going to own us again, and we don't want that. So Hair metal. I just thought that was super interesting that there's like, <laughs> of all the companies that own Spinal Tap, it's, you know, a, a shampoo company. Yeah, so <laughs> Yeah, that's actually very, like, Spinal Tapian. <laughs> yeah, in a weird way, yes, it is. We have to play this concert for L'Oreal again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, do we want to like tuck into the like highlights and the lowlights of the film? Yeah, um, let's do I it. think the, the best place to start would be with our band members. Yeah, there's the three main members of the group, and then obviously the director of the film, Marty DeBerge. and those four. So the four guys are the ones who are credited as the writers on the film. So. Right. Seems like that's a perfect place to start with. So do you guys have a favorite tap? Yeah. Who do we start with? Because you can make an argument, I think, at least for either Guest or McKean, yeah. right? Yes, I would say but, so. But I would say, here's my argument. I would say Guest is the one who takes this format and runs with it. Yes. And agrees. so even though he, in some ways I think McKean is kind of the front man, I think that, that Guest deserves the first look. All right, perfect. Let's so let's start with uh, Lord Christopher Guest because yes. he's he is the fifth Hayden Baron Guest. Hayden Guest. Yeah. yeah, so he is actually a lord, which makes his wife. You know who his wife is, right? Jamie Lee Curtis. So yeah. What's her yeah. title? Do you know? I, I guess that would make her the the, the, the lady Hayden Guest because I think yes, Lord lady. and Lady. So yeah, the, the lady Hayden bitch, Guest. Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, Nate, like, tell us a little bit about Lord Hayden Guest. Yeah, so I, I did a little bit of background research on this, and feel free to jump in because you probably know more about these things than I do. But I think both Christopher Guest and Michael McKean had some like experience playing music, like early yes. on in like high school and college and all of that kind of thing. Interestingly, Guest started out playing country music and bluegrass, and then kind of like eventually found his way into like rock and roll. He really started acting in the seventies and eventually landed a role on the National Lampoon Radio Hour doing mm. both sketches and musical parodies, like yeah. from, right from the very beginning. So I thought that, that made a lot of sense that this is sort of the direction he goes. And um, if I'm not mistaken, that's where he met Tony Hendra, who plays Ian, the band manager. He was oh, also a member of oh, okay. the National Lampoon Radio Hour. So that's sort of how that guy gets involved in this in this group. Yeah, and he's he's great. I mean, it's a smallish oh, he's role. so good. But he, he, you really need that, <laughs> just that personality. He's a little sleazy, and all, and a little yep. incompetent, you know, it's great. Um, Fuck the napkin. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is like his first big role, basically, at least in film. And it's that's the story for a lot of these guys. He was also an SNL cast member in 1984 and 85. And apparently that was an extension of a Spinal Tap appearance as guests on the show. So they basically like show oh. up as Spinal Tap and then they get offered the job to stay on the show and guest takes it 
Shearer takes it. And McKean is like, nope, <laughs> I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> and that is, if I'm not mistaken, that's the famous Dick Ebersol season yes. of Saturday Night Live. We're getting where he basically fired the entire cast yeah. and hired this. This is the craziest cast of Saturday Night Live because like you d- wouldn't realize that all of these people necessarily were on the show. So it's Jim Belushi, mm-hmm. Billy Crystal, yeah. Christopher Guest. Rich Hall, who I don't know if you're a big fan of whose line it is it anyway, the British version. He was the American who was always randomly showing up. Julia Louis-Dreyfus from Seinfeld. Harry Shearer, Mm -hmm. although he quits like halfway through. And Martin Short. Right. So like (laughs) an incredible cast. Yeah, an incredible cast. But like all of them basically did one year and then... That was right. it. Christopher Guest being one of them that he he's only there for 84, 85, and then he's gone. And then, of course, like the thing that he's most known for is basically going on to do all of these other mockumentary movies. Right. He did do a couple other Rob Reiner projects. He is famously the six fingered man in The Princess Bride. And he was also in A Few Good Men. But then he goes on to do Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show, A Mighty Wind for Your Consideration, Mascots. Yeah. And arguably, you know, in my opinion, maybe to diminishing returns a little bit. bit. I think I I, I don't fully agree with you, Adam, actually. I think there's sort of this balance that maybe is never totally struck in any of the movies where this one is so unstructured. It's part of maybe why it works in terms of feeling like a documentary. But even by waiting for Guffman, he's figured out that. You need a bit of a story, I guess. Yes. Right. Yes. And I will. I, I, absolutely. Like, I would say that the Christopher Guest movies, and that's why I say, like, it's not that they're bad movies or anything, but they feel more like they have been written to have a act one, two, and three, whereas this feels more like some of those documentaries you can find where it's like they are kind of just meandering and there's no yeah. real plot. And it's just like a series of vignettes. And that's what gives it sort of this authenticity. But we're going to we're going to talk all about yeah, that. We'll, later, get, so, we'll, we'll so, get there. Yeah, we'll, we'll get, get, get into there. it. But OK, well, let's talk about McKean. So McKean plays David St. Hubbins. And yeah, like I said, he also has a sort of background in music, played in a band in his 20s. But he sort of got his real start with the credibility gap which is was like a radio comedy group from 1969 to 1976 with Harry Shearer and with David Lander who becomes Squiggy on okay. uh on whatever it's called Laverne and Laverne Shirley. And Shirley. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> there was so a there's off of happy of, days. Yeah. There's this kind of like group of people that are all kind of floating around in right. these various groups. So then he's in Laverne and Shirley. And that's from 76 to 82. So he's on there for a long, long time. I guess he's kind of the one who like really had some big stuff going on in TV and movies compared to Shearer and Guest already. So he had a lot of bit parts in TV and movies across his entire career. This was his biggest film role to date, though, much like Guest. But then after this, he just kind of hangs out with Guest for most of his career and does like all of those same movies with him. But the thing he's most known for now is Better Call Saul. Oh, is he in that? I've never I, I've never watched the show, so Oh really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. He gives an absolutely phenomenal dramatic performance in that show. I haven't watched the whole show, but I've watched like the first season. And I believe he's Saul's brother. 
Okay. Uh, who has like sort of obsessive compulsive disorder and their relationship's incredible. I mean, the acting on that show is incredible in general, but it's a completely right. different kind of performance than all of this other stuff. And he's really phenomenal in that. And that's honestly, these days, I think that's probably what most people would recognize him from. Unless you're me, in which case it's Clue the movie. Because he, <laughs> he gives a phenomenal performance as Mr. Green he in does. Clue the movie. Uh, that's that's the only other thing I know him from. <laughs> My big connection to him is another film about metal, which is Airheads, where he plays the, oh, yeah. the slimy uh, DJ radio. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like the head of the radio station, and he's preparing to move the radio station from like a more hard rock sound to easy listening. Sorry for those of you who haven't seen Airheads. <laughs> Big spoiler. Um, yeah, so he plays that kind of like he's a, a ponytailed, greasy, slimy, and he does it perfectly. And it's just funny that it's a movie about a three-man band, uh, a yeah. power trio, if you will. And he plays kind of the foil to the metal band 10 years after Spinal Tap, he had already moved on to being like the crappy, easy listening guy, <laughs> which is uh, very ironic and very funny. I would also say that he's it's, you know, Nate, you say that he gives this great dramatic performance in Better Call Saul. I'm not surprised because I think he's probably the best actor yeah. of the bunch. I mean, he gets sort of the most character arc, I guess, in a sense, like because of his girlfriend, he starts to become the foil. But I feel like you sort of get to see the most acting as it were from him in the film so i'm not surprised that he can turn in this strong dramatic role unlike harry shearer who i feel like kind of gets short shrift in this movie like he's totally he's great in it but he's barely in it like it's really which i always keen and guess so totally but the some of the best moments though are harry shearer when he's like (laughs) yes finally able to kind of like get into the scenes near the end uh, he yeah. delivers some of my favorite lines. But yeah, he's also had a kind of crazy career. Because he's old. Yeah. He got his first gig <laughs> at the age of seven. Yeah, that's wild. He starts old. Yeah. Well, I just mean like relative to everybody else. Yeah, he's he's the old guy. It's true. It's true. He started working on the Jack Benny show when he was seven. Yeah. Wow. So he's old. The Jack yes. Benny show was in like the 50s. And, and. And he was also sort of mentored by Mel Blanc. Does that name mean anything yes. to you? Uh, yes, absolutely. the voice of, yeah. voice of uh, Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck and all those guys. Yeah, yeah. all the Looney yeah. Tunes characters. Barney Rubble, too. And so yep. it's like, yep. it's interesting, like, early days was already being groomed to be a, a voice actor and a radio guy in a lot of ways. So makes a lot of sense. Yeah, he was also in the, in the credibility gap. So that's kind of how he gets circled into all of this whole world. But the other really interesting credit before this is he co-wrote a movie called Real Life that is an Albert Brooks movie. And the interesting thing about it is that it is also a mockumentary from 1979. Okay, interesting. So it's sort of, it's a parody of this TV show that was also like a... um, Right, yes, the sort of first reality show. An American Family. Um, Yeah. An American Family, yes. Yes. And so it's like Albert Brooks is like trying to make this movie about his family. So it's just interesting that that like already, again, Harry Shearer was already kind of playing around in this mockumentary medium, but more as a writer. He was on SNL, as I said, in 1984, 1985. He was also on before that in 1979, 1980, hated it both times. Yeah, okay. (laughs) And was like kind of slagging everyone involved and said it was a crappy place to work and all of that. 
And in 84, he thought that things had changed because it was under new management and hated it again. So, um, yeah. (laughs) And again, like you can kind of read into that what you will. Like it sounds like it was maybe just like also personality clashes a little bit. Yeah. And then, of course, he, you know, joins The Simpsons in 1989. And for anyone who doesn't know, I think probably most people do know who listened to this show. But, you know, Shearer does the voice of Principal Skinner, Mr. Burns, Smithers, Flanders, Reverend Lovejoy, Lenny, Rainier Wolfcastle, Scratchy, and Otto, of course. So kind of interesting given, you know, the episode where you have Spinal Tap also features Otto so pre- prevalently. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a little bit about Shearer. He's, you know, honestly, after that, he hasn't done a lot well, he's too busy doing Simpsons voices. Like, sure, he's got a, he's got a lot of work That's to do. Yeah. Even in that episode, it's like the KBBL Skinner Otto <laughs> himself playing another character. Yeah, like, yeah. he's pulling like quadruple, five tuple, six tuple bill in that one. Totally, totally. <laughs> he does appear in a couple other guest movies as well, yeah, including yeah. Mighty mm-hmm. Wind and for your consideration. He's done a, a little bit of directing as well. Interestingly, okay, he did a documentary about. Hurricane Katrina and New Ooh. Orleans. The Big Uneasy, I think it's called. Oh, yeah. And then lastly, we got Rob Reiner in the role of Martin DeBerge. My man. My <laughs> man. Yeah. Rob, love me some Rob Reiner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This was uh, this was a quite an interesting thing. Again, like when I first saw this, I didn't get this at all. Right. Like didn't understand right. what he was trying to do. Didn't really know who Rob Reiner was. So now. Oh, really? It, okay. Yeah, no, because, I mean, I saw it in high school. I didn't have any idea who Rob Reiner was. But, like, was. you did not have the coming of age, like, most 10-year-old boys did of seeing, Sp- uh, not Spinal Tap, Stand that's what we're talking about. Me. Stand By Me. Like, Stand By Me was, like, a seminal film for me as a, like. It's my favorite movie of all time. I saw I saw Stand By Me in high school. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess because your parents liked Black Beauty and Star Trek, yes. so you didn't watch movies. <laughs> yes, exactly. I probably saw The Princess Bride first and good but, okay but like again it was at an age where i didn't know who directors were so it was like right. i didn't right, associate right, right. it with fair. rob reiner but more recently it's like when harry met sally is one of my like all-time favorite movies so yeah. he's an incredible director and i think it's always interesting we talked about this before with rocky a little bit mm-hmm. where you have this director that kind of originates a certain style and then you have right. a star that kind of runs with it right um yeah, yeah yeah totally and and like rob reiner is so good at coming up with these really inventive formats for movies you know because like Mm -hmm. the princess bride is so original uh and when harry met sally is also so original in terms of the way that it presents the story it's not at all shot like a mockumentary but it does have those sort of interviews moments cut in cut in with with the couples and everything but like i think he is a really big important part of why this movie works and Guest kind of yeah. takes it and runs with it, but it definitely feels very different what Guest produces. I mean, listening to the thing that sucks the most about this Criterion disc going out of print is that on all subsequent home video releases of Spinal Tap, the only commentary track is an in-character commentary track from the band. And it's hilarious. It is absolutely hilarious just listening to these th- three guys riff for 82 minutes. But what you lose is the Criterion disc has a cast commentary where it's the three actors telling you sort of like how the movie came about and telling, you know, anecdotes and stuff. Um, And then a commentary with the crew. So it's Rob Reiner, the producer, Karen Murphy, and then the editors, Robert Layton and Kent Beta. 
and Reiner really gets into like the the nitty gritty of like his philosophy of making this movie and the philosophy of the editing structure and the structure of the movie and where he thinks he went wrong and what he would do differently with retrospect but like you know this was his first movie and like he really was learning on the job and he knew he always wanted to make movies but like acting was sort of a stepping stone into becoming a a director and i've long maintained that he might have the greatest run of any filmmaker ever because i want to read these to you because this is consecutively well there's one in between which i haven't seen so i can't actually comment about but so starts with this is spinal tap then he makes a movie called the sure thing which kind of doesn't exist and i only read is it good you've seen it marco it's actually really good so me and my friends have this thing where we try to find a director that has four amazing movies in a row and it's actually okay. much more difficult than you might think no and exactly Rob reiner like blows them out of the water well, yeah, so th- like yeah so this is this is films. what i was yeah some would say few good men but eh, few good men's not, not great. well so so this is spinal tap <laughs> followed by the sure thing which i haven't seen but marco assures us is great followed by stand by me which i maintain is a masterpiece it's great followed by the princess all time yeah followed by the princess bride an excellent selection uh followed by the princess bride which is a masterpiece followed by when harry met sally which is a masterpiece (laughs) followed by misery which is a masterpiece followed by a few good men which uh, masterpiece maybe not but as courtroom dramas written by aaron sorkin goes pretty good movie and then the chicago uh, seven well, okay, let's not slag off Mr. Sorkin. Um, and then a, mo- a, a movie called North, which I haven't seen. And then The American President, which is actually pretty good as well. It's sort of like mm, a dry funny, run yeah. for The West Wing. So unfortunately, from that point onward, it's not bangers. But still, six, it's a lot, it's six a good run. stone cold masterpieces. <laughs> yes. Like, And so, again, like uh, not just good movies, but like, very, very different movies. That basically like launch different styles and mm-hmm. and other yep. people groundbreaking like Efron and like yep. all that stuff. You know, I mean, it's and it's our incredible. best in class in the genre that they're oh, yeah. in. Totally. Just an astounding filmmaker and a very very funny and by all accounts very very kind man. Um, and he's also along a great the way actor. We, he's he is Rob also a great, actor, a great yeah. actor. He's so funny in like New Girl as yes just as dad as, just like, as dad. Yep. And then also he plays the dad in Wolf of Wall Street, where he's really funny. Oh, yeah. Um, Leo DiCaprio's dad. And then Sleepless in Seattle. Like, him and Tom Hanks in that movie, when they're sitting in the diner, and he goes, tiramisu. He's like, what is that? <laughs> like, don't worry. You'll love it. He's like, a, a woman's going to want me to do it to her, and I won't know what it is. And he's just like, trust me. Trust me. Rob, if you're listening, uh, you're awesome. Well, but, and not respect. only that, like, I never watched All in the Family because, like, right. it's kind of yeah. before our time, and it was one of those shows. It just, sure. like, doesn't appeal, and it hasn't really aged necessarily all that great. But, like, my dad watched All in the Family, and he's like, yeah, mm-hmm. Meathead. Like, he's so good on that show. Like, he's part of what makes that show work was, like, the relationship between him and his father on the show. So, right. yeah. I think he's an underrated talent because if you were to ask most cinephiles, like, who's your number one guy? Like, I don't think most people are going to say Rob Reiner, no. but it's one of those things of like, if you then list the, those six movies, you go, <laughs> yeah. damn, like that's, yeah. that's but impressive. It's, but again, it's like one of those things where people don't necessarily think of him as an auteur because he doesn't have a shtick. Right. 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 It's like point. when you think about those movies, they don't necessarily seem like that they're, they're directed by the same person. It's funny how that counts against people when really it's actually totally incredible because he's not a chameleon either. He's not just doing whatever people want him to do. He's just inventing all this new stuff. 
Um, yeah. So yeah. anyway, we could I go mean, on and on, I'm sure. No, but it's you're right. It's just kind of like Spinal Tap mockumentary. Then Harry Met Sally is like rom-com apex yeah <laughs> like obviously I, I, yeah i would amazing, argue the greatest like, rom-com ever made right yeah. like it's yeah. and Nora Ephron's obviously a great writer and those two worked so well together which is why she put him in sleepless in seattle but then like stand by me again being my favorite movie i could talk about it for years but it's like name a better coming of age film totally. than stand by me and also again inventive with the book ended where it's the writer telling yeah. the story and he's yep. writing the book that was written by stephen king and you know yeah. like all of those little yeah. things and obviously princess bride kind of takes that same thing mm-hmm reading the book and it becomes this fantasy but it starts as like a kid in chicago with his grandfather you know like (laughs) taking this very uh minuscule event of a grandfather reading to his grandson and turning it into this fantastical experience both for the boy and the grandfather and the people in the story and but and then the ending where he's like maybe you'll come back tomorrow and read it to me again like oh my god every time like it's just that movie that movie is the best it's the best (laughs) And the the misery is terrifying. Like, Kathy Bates is one of the scariest people ever put on film. Yeah, that movie. Have you seen Misery, Nate? No, I have not. (sighs) Okay. It's a a watch. It is. I don't... (laughs) I, I almost don't think, like... No, because there's some some stuff in it like there's a very graphic uh the the famous scene hobbling hobbling yes hobbling uh where she yeah, yeah. she puts a block of wood between his ankles and then takes a hammer to it and and then ooh. you can imagine what happens yeah it's so hard to watch but like again it's just these outstanding performances from kathy bates and james con but it's directed by the spinal tap guy like it's the just it's it, it, it is yeah. it's it is a remarkable tonal shift, and to your point, Native, like that's almost more impressive than the Fincher thing of like being able to, yeah. you know, direct a stylish thriller over and over again. Not to discredit my boy David Fincher, like he's, no. you know, I love him, but it's doesn't yeah, there is something the four, to be said for doesn't have the four film run though, you know, it doesn't have the four no. film run like Rhyme Rhyme. No, because Benjamin Button's true. in there, and that that kills the <laughs> that kills the that kills the run. Yeah, that, that that's well. almost like that should be the placeholder for any time someone has a bad film right in the middle, being like, that's just Benjamin Button. Put that's that's Benjamin on. Button. That's your BB. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, back to back to this film. There's also a, a, like insane amount of cameos in this movie insane. which like yes <laughs> some some of which people don't even realize so you've got patrick mcnee you know mr avenger himself playing sir dennis eaton hogg which mm-hmm. nate you you questioned this and i wanted to confirm that yes the eaton hogg is is a reference to michael Lindsay hogg from the get back uh slash oh, yeah, he's, he's, the, he's the director documentary. of um let it be not get back yes but he, yes he correct but got all the footage yeah yeah <laughs> exactly so that is their little like nod to that fran drescher mm-hmm. the nanny plays bobby fleckman the, the pr best. lady for polymer <laughs> records and has some of the best lines in the entire movie so billy good. crystal <laughs> as the mime caterer from shut up and eat and there's um in in mime the is famous money. four and a half mime mime, is come money. on mime is money uh in the in the famous four and a half hour work print there's like so much stuff with billy crystal that's just they <laughs> had to cut out but did you know that the other mime is dana carvey dana carvey i did from, not know that that's yeah hilarious. like yeah exactly and i think he might have a little bit of dialogue in the deleted scenes but that's who that guy is paul schaefer david letterman's musical director is Artie fufkin kick my Artie kick, kick my, my ass, ass. I'm not asking. I'm telling. Kick my ass. Kick it. (laughs) Bruno Kirby as the limo driver, who had like that scene is just that's the the scene with the Sammy Davis Jr. Yes, I can. That scene's in the demo reel, but they 
w- one of the best gags is when he's talking and then Nigel looks like looks him dead in the eye and then slowly puts the partition up. <laughs> Unreal. So Unreal. They 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 do that gag in the demo, but it's just, like the timing isn't as funny. But again, it just sort of shows the evolution. Fred Willard as the Air Force liaison oh, yeah. at, near the end of the film. My hair's and getting then, a little regular. I'm kidding, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then and a then unknown, just a famous daughter, Angelica Houston yeah. is the art the artist who creates Stonehenge. Stonehenge. <laughs> so I believe her only other credit prior to this, if I'm not mistaken, is as Alvy's girlfriend at the end of Annie Hall. Oh. So remember at the end of Annie Hall, he like runs into her at the movies and he's got a date. Yeah. His date is Angelica Houston. I'm pretty Weird. sure if I'm not mistaken. But she has no lines and you like it's yeah. such a wide shot you don't even see her. So again, just what a sensational cast of like all these incredible sort of like character actors and like com- sketch comedians and people who would go on to have like incredible careers after. Well, but that's fact. the thing is like at the time, these weren't like cameos. No, these were just no. people that they. A lot, I think probably They're a lot of people friends. they knew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. and then they just went on to have these amazing careers for very good reason. You know. And amazing. just yeah. want to have yeah. to mention. What I have to mention is Ed Begley Jr. plays their original drummer from the skiff from the skiffle group. The <laughs> yeah, from the uh, what did they call him? Like the, the bespeckled nerd or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I I can't believe I forgot about that. But uh, yeah, it's just like it's chock full of all of these names of people that would later go on to become comedy legends and but are just like nobodies at this point i mean even billy crystal it's weird to think that there was a period where like billy crystal was a nobody but like at this point i mean he would have done that season of snl or Uh, i guess would he have worked with him on the lampoon radio show Ooh, good question possibly yeah but again i don't like billy crystal wouldn't have been a name that people recognized yet yeah because it's when harry met sally is his sort of like that's what really breaks him as far as i I understand. So, which is mm-hmm. still a also with away, Bruno so. Kirby, of course, who's fantastic. also with Bruno Kirby. Yes, who is also in the Godfather Part Two, um, and that's what <laughs> I, I always think of. about that. Who's he in the Godfather Part Two? In the flashback stuff, he's Clemenza. I want to say he's like basically Robert uh, yeah, De Niro's best friend. Oh. But he has, like, very little dialogue in the movie. But I always, whenever I watch it, I'm like, oh, my God, it's the taxi driver from Spinal Tap. Okay, so I want to talk about the structure and the, just the idea of, like, the, the framing device of this. You know, they opted not to do a fiction film. It's presented as a documentary. And by all accounts, right. some people didn't necessarily understand that it was a fake documentary. But as I've argued, and will continue to argue throughout the next little bit, it's sort of the best example of this in terms of the execution. But obviously, in the commentary, they, they sort of discuss some of the precedents and, and references that they were calling from. And one sure. of the big ones was obviously The Last Waltz, which... Are you yeah. either of you familiar with The Last Waltz? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I actually <laughs> watched it for the first time earlier this week um, for, for this did, And what did you what did you think of it, Nate? I'm very curious. I mean, it's incredibly well made. And I think if you're a fan of music from that era, when this was in theaters, it must have been absolutely mind-blowing. If you didn't see this concert because of all of the people involved yeah you know it's kind of an encapsulation of an era of music in a lot of ways and also honestly as uh, as a canadian it's it's really interesting because there's a lot of canadian american stuff going on there yeah, yeah, yeah. um but I, I do think that the inserts of the interviews there's less of it than i was expecting and i actually you know 
again, I was watching it at home and I'm not necessarily a huge fan of this era of music. <laughs> and so for me, I'm like, I could have heard them talk a little bit more actually about the music and about their philosophy and their experiences and all this kind of stuff. So I, I, I kind of respect it. But honestly, by the end, partly because I just wanted to actually get to the end of it, I was fast forwarding right. through the music. <sighs> Blasphemy. <laughs> See, <'cause>, Blasphemy. <laughs> you, sir. <laughs> yeah, I think you fast forwarded through the wrong part, Snake, because I rewatched it and I had not seen. Yeah. I'd never actually seen the movie from start to finish until this week. I'd, I'd seen like most of the movie over the years because uh, my dad and his friends are big fans of this music in this era but i find the interview segments incredibly contrived and kind of almost vapid at times like and there's not really much going on like there's the scene of them in the kitchen where they're mm -hmm. like robbie robertson is telling some story and i'm just like you can tell that scorsese made him do this like eight times and like he's <laughs> jumping around the room and it's just like it doesn't feel authentic at all and because it's it's an drugs. interesting <laughs> well, he exactly, looks terrible but... <laughs> robbie robertson looks rough in, in that rough <laughs> but the reason i i wanted to talk about that is because again i think that's where this film, which is obviously, again, it's sort of the idea of like concert footage interspliced with behind the scenes interspliced right. with interviews. This is the amazing thing about it is that the interview segments in this do not feel contrived at all. They feel really <laughs> real. And part right. of that is because of how this film was made. So to sort of get to the nitty gritty of what they did, every scene was outlined. They knew like, OK, we have to get from point A to point B to point C. But there was no written script or dialogue or what right. they needed to say to get there. They might do a scene seven times, and obviously if there was a line that landed the first time, they might repeat it or try something sure. different. And obviously the thing that you start to realize when you go back and you watch that demo is that there are definitely moments where they're like, we really like that. We got to work that in. We're going to say that line for sure. <laughs> but apparently one of the things that they did, and I think this is really, really clever, is they said when DeBerge is asking any of the questions in the interview segments, they did not know the questions in advance. And that's okay. and so like the scene where they're <laughs> reading the reviews feeling. of the albums, they had never heard those before. I guess Reiner wrote them all. In <laughs> One of my band. favorite and scenes. The review you had on Shark Sandwich, which was merely a two-word review, just said "shit sandwich." Um, <laughs> and they print that. Where they print that? That's not real. You can't print that. And that's why when shit they get sandwich it. gets me every time. <laughs> and they laugh. You can tell they laugh for real. They're yeah. like, you can't write that. Can yeah. you? <laughs> that's what they said. They said that is one hundred percent authentic reaction because they did not expect the, to hear the that's review awesome. for Shark Sandwich I was merely a two word a review. Two word review. Shit sandwich. <laughs> shit sandwich. That's not real. Where'd that they print that? Where'd they print that? That's not real. Uh, yeah, one of the best jokes in the whole movie. One of one of but my uh, my <laughs> wife and I, when whenever we have a, a hard decision to make that doesn't have any good um, sort of options, our go to saying is, "Well, what toppings would you like on your shit sandwich?" <laughs> there you go. Well, there you go. Two word review. So I think some of the most memorable moments from this movie are those sort of like those weird like perfect sort of encapsulations of being in the moment and i do think all of the best sort of like quotable lines come from these sort of segments like the interview segments yeah, and like definitely. this goes to 11 obviously like all of that stuff is right. all from the sort of more structured interview stuff but i think some of the funniest lines are the lines that are 
kind of thrown away in the other scenes mm-hmm. over the years there's been like I've, I find new jokes every time I watch this because there's just so much going on I, <laughs> one of my favorite lines is when Bobby is confronting Ian about the album cover and she's like you have a greased up woman on, t- on her knees and you have a glove shoved in her face and he's like well you should have seen the cover they wanted to do I don't care what they want the first time I caught that line I howled the other funny thing in that scene is that she's like she makes some comment about it not being the 60s anymore yeah. Which is like, was this yes. happening in the 60s? It's 1982. Yeah. <laughs> I love that line. It's such a funny line. This is this 1982. It's brilliant. It's just, what a funny year. And then, and then of course, that leads to, an, to another off-quoted line of mine when Ian is get, telling the band that they can't do this. And Nigel's like, what's wrong with being sexy? And he goes, sexy, And then they all, but in, in that scene, they all have gonorrhea. They are like herpes, sorry. Herpes. Right. Yeah, they all have a herpes and it's sore. never mentioned. It's never alluded to. Nothing. It's just, they have herpes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it like... is, is, so that is one of the deleted uh, subplots from the four and a half hour work print. Because basically some woman is involved, maybe backstage or whatever. She's essentially a groupie. And she starts dating or sleeping with each member of the band. Isn't it their opening act or something? (laughs) Yes, that's what it is. It's their opening act. And so the herpes sore sort of passes from person to person. But then there's one member of the band who never has the herpes sore. And so everybody wants to fire her because they've, like, slept with her and now they're done with her. And he's like, I don't understand why you want to get rid of her. I think she's great. But it's because he's never slept with her. So much of this dialogue ended up being improvised and all this that the four guys basically were like, we want to acknowledge the contributions of all of these actors. Of everyone, like, right? There's no script. And so they apparently went to the guild, the writers guild, and petitioned them to be like, hey, can we credit all of these people? And the writers guild was like, absolutely not. They took it to like tribunal or whatever. Like, and it 15 to zero, the entire board said, nobody but writers can come up with anything clever. So therefore, it's got to just go to you for. So there is a credit right. at the end of the film that's sort of like, we want to thank the contributions of the cast and blah, 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 blah. But they really wanted to literally credit every single person right. with dialogue in this movie as a writer because they said, like, it, this wasn't just written by us. It really was... You know, a team effort, which is yeah. which yeah. is pretty pretty a collaboration. Come on, guys, mime is money. Mime is money. Yeah, mime Billy is... Crystal really should get something <laughs> yeah, for that. But... Mime is money is a great. You know, he that sounds like a line from when Harry met Sally. So like, yes, that's, you know that that's is a Billy Crystal. Christ- <laughs> yeah, that is definitely a crystallism. So yeah, but all of this is to say, this is kind of this groundbreaking structure and way of doing a film. What do you guys think about it? Because. I, I'm just curious what you think of the structure, how you think of the pacing. Does it bother you? Does it feel a little too meandering? Do you like it? Do you dislike it? Marco, what what are your thoughts on this sort of documentary structure? Like, so I made some notes while I was watching it because I've never had to watch it with kind of like a purpose before. Um, <laughs> and I was just kind of trying to think of like other documentaries. And there's some things that are mentioned by them in, you know, some of the interviews I read and stuff and some that aren't. But definitely like D.A. Pennebaker's documentaries come to mind like the Dylan one they they keep Mm -hmm. mentioning that one Don't Look Back which is you know pretentious Dylan smoking (laughs) on speed talking about God knows what and like being kind of a dick Um, but there's also like the Monterey Pop documentary that Mm. which is so good which is which is really good and it's also kind of like 80 minutes and very short and cuts a quick pace and then there's like the Woodstock documentary which came out which is four hours long which again (laughs) as you keep mentioning this like work print of this film maybe that was kind of 
what they were going for. But then there's also Peter Clifton and Joe Massos or Massot's ridiculous Led Zeppelin doc fantasy film, The Song Remains the Same, which kind of has yeah, these That movie of- is wild. <laughs> wild. So there's like those you know, parts of them playing the show and then suddenly you're on Robert Plant's farm and he's like playing with his children and then there's like uh, I think John Bonham is like farming and he's on a tractor and then there's like weird interspersed scenes of druids which are in the movie and you know them on like mountaintops Jimmy Page becomes like King Arthur at one point like it's it is perfect and like that kind of that movie is you could tell a lot of drugs were involved in the making of that film you're like how do you make something so so bad on heroin. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, and then, of course, like there's all the cinema verite films, especially the ones from the Maisels brothers, like Gimme Shelter, yeah. which obviously mm. like rock film where there's kind of like, you know, musicians being like, this is the latest hit from my new album. <laughs> and then it's like them on stage playing Gimme Shelter. You're like, this is sick. Um, and Great Gardens, um, which, again, mm. that kind of like fly on the wall thing of just. Yeah. It feels kind of chaotic, and it doesn't really go anywhere, and it does kind of meander. Yeah. Um, like those those like cinema verite films don't necessarily go anywhere. They're just kind of trying yeah. to show you. And even in the the Grey Gardens, which if people haven't seen, highly recommended. It. It's incredible. <laughs> you know, there's like interactions with the camera crew because they love the fact that there's a camera crew there but then they're also kind of fighting and their house is in disarray and they haven't done anything to change who they are as people which i think really comes through in this film where they don't care that the camera is there they're kind of just being who they are acting how they are they're so pretentious that they're unpretentious <laughs> they don't, they're not trying to like put on as you said in the last waltz where there's kind of this kind of like cool affectation of like we have to be kind of you know yeah. pretend like we grew up on farms and stuff and that whole kind of the band mythology like i love the band and i love the last waltz but yeah some of those interviews there's like the one where they're talking about the guy spitting blood into a bucket while playing the harmonica <laughs> yes. and like that's a cool story but you're also like why are you telling this it's like (laughs) not your story stop doing blow (laughs) (laughs) take down that confederate flag and then neil young walks out with a coke in his nose (laughs) (laughs) my god dude one less bump one was that one toke over the line christ and so like those are the types of films that i think really played an effect and clearly like these are people who are cinephiles even at the time I'm like watching a lot of these yeah. films because you know there's no I don't know 82 83 when they were filming this I don't think there's video rental stores and or anything like that no, like you no, have no, to no. seek out these films and go to screenings and go to rep- repertory theaters and find these films that you know these are eight millimeter and 16 millimeter films <laughs> like these aren't necessarily yeah the criterion collection doesn't exist yeah. yet yeah, so like these <laughs> these things are kind of hard to see like unless you're at your local art house exactly. cinema and they're yeah and yet, and it sounds like these... they were also incorporating a lot of stories from bands bands yeah absolutely like, like just, yeah. just yeah. stories they'd heard or other weird kind of like stray footage that they'd seen of that kind of thing <laughs> so like you hear a lot of stories of you know musicians watching this movie and being like oh yeah this this is like about us or or just being like yeah yeah no this sounds so familiar they like 100% got it right like that scene of of them getting lost backstage apparently like many <laughs> musicians have been like oh yeah totally been there <laughs> and, and and i don't know if they would have seen it at the time but uh, penelope spheris has that awesome collection of films called the decline of western civilization the first one's about punk the second one's about metal and the third one's about kind of like cross punk and 
Kids Living in L.A. And mm-hmm. the first one came out in 1981. And it definitely has those things of like people being interviewed directly to the camera. She's participating mm-hmm. with them. It's almost so ridiculous in some of the scenes, especially with like the germs and fear, two of the bands who are in the movie, where you're just kind of like, I can't believe this is real and this is really happening. And they're like, somebody throws a bottle at Darby Crash and he picks it up and drinks it. You're like, he just got beaned <laughs> with a bottle and now you're like trying to drink booze out of it. That sounds um, like Bart's fantasy. Bart's <laughs> slag yeah, off. Really does. <laughs> and then, you know, later she makes the metal years, which definitely has this kind of spinal tap energy to mm-hmm. it. And it came out later that some of the interviews she was doing were not not faked but kind of exaggerated mm, for the right. sake of the film and so it's funny that i think that first film probably had an influence or they must have seen it and then for her second film to kind of have that spinal tap energy it's a right, kind it's of, yeah of, it's like it's, it's yeah, like circular, circular. yeah, yeah, yeah. make a film about the, the ridiculousness of the glam metal and hair metal scene in la in that time is so different than what the first decline of western civilization is that i can't imagine Spinal Tap not having an influence on that and, you know, interviewing Ozzy and he can't pour himself a glass of orange juice because he's apparently going through delirium tremens. And then it turns out that she kind of faked that footage and stuff. So um, at the same time, she's like kind of trying to be salacious and trying to be shocking to show how crazy the life of these metal guys is. Whereas in this movie, it just kind of happens naturally. Like you don't have to put it on. They're just such characters that you don't have to exaggerate it's just they just are ridiculous even though they're not even acting ridiculous which i think might be the difference between this and some of those christopher guest movies adam is that in those films the characters are really ridiculous and here they're kind of playing it straight but they just come out being ridiculous well i mean to me a perfect example is in best in show there's like it's a moment that's in the trailer and it makes me laugh every time but like eugene levy is introduced as a man who has two left feet or whatever (laughs) it is and that's a funny gag, sure. but it's like, that's not realistic. That's a good like, word, but that's a good word, gags. Whereas the things in this yes. movie don't feel like gags. They don't feel like one-liners or quips or these zingers. They become these people. It's it's, it's almost ridiculous. Yeah. Like, they don't, you know, they're so ridiculous, even though they are playing it straight, that that's where the comedy I mean, comes from. <laughs> yeah, like, Grey Gardens is a good call. The feel of that movie where you almost have to laugh sometimes yeah. because it's so deeply uncomfortable. So uncomfortable. <laughs> right? Like this movie. <laughs> and, like, it, but but it has that vibe where it's, like, you really do feel like you're, you're getting a, a glimpse into the, the life of this band, and they just happen to be ridiculous people exactly, rather than playing to a joke, right? Especially that scene near the end where they, you know, have the meltdown. The blowout. And it's it's a parody of, apparently there's this famous Trogs tape. So the Trogs was a band in the 60s. Yep. And they famously have this, like, blowout. And I guess the engineer started recording it. And it's just them, like, yelling at each other <laughs> for 40 minutes or whatever. I think it is a good song. I agree, it is a good song. But it won't be unless we spend a little bit of thought and imagination to make it number one. You've got to put a little bit of fairy dust over the bastard. That scene where they're in the recording studio and Nigel blows up on David is like, you you can't play because you're your wife. (laughs) Um, That's like a riff on this Trogs tape thing. But like, that's one of those scenes where it feels very authentic and like, again it sort of shows their acting chops of like you almost feel like the camera guys are in the room and they're like 
oh god like i don't want to be here but also i'm going to keep rolling because like i know that this is some like gold footage and like all this stuff let it be is yes. one of those films sorry i forgot to mention that and you had mentioned it earlier but same thing there's even a part where he's like i'll play whatever you want me to play and that's the, yeah. you know yeah, directly yeah, yeah, yeah. lifted from let it be where i think george harrison says that to paul mccartney yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like i'll play whatever you want me to play i don't even care anymore <laughs> i feel like that whole section at the end where they're in the recording studio yeah, yeah. and they're having this fight and there's an interview with Shearer actually near the end where he's sort of like, you know, we're so lucky to have two geniuses in the band. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. and I'm yeah. just I forget what he says, but it's something like I really see myself as like the tepid water of the band or something like that. <laughs> That's gotta be, you know, a Beatles sort of reference, I think. Yeah. Of just the sort of like John and Paul dynamic. Well, so I want to talk about specifically the editing next. But before mm. I do, I want to ask you, because I feel like you kind of alluded to this in our text messages, Nate. Like, Marco and Nate, did you find the film felt long? Because it's only 82 minutes. Like, it is a short movie. I, I did. And I okay, think interesting. there was actually a specific moment where I was like, okay, come on. It's the scene where they visit elvis's grave oh interesting and and i'm not sure exactly where that falls probably like somewhere in the very middle like halfway through i would yeah it's probably the end of the first act or start of the second act or if you're like breaking it out into thirds so, yeah. yeah and but i think yeah it's probably at the like 40 minute mark maybe. right and i think for me i was just like that was the point where i was like okay like what's the story where are we going like introduce right. something that's going to complicate things or because it's like for the first act, you can totally get away with just like we're immersing you in this world and these characters and their situation. But like you really need something to kind of like push it forward. And again, like I have issues with the later Christopher Guest movies, but this is what they're so good at is that they kind of pin down the structure of being like it's basically a formula. It's the big show. Yeah. That's the formula yep. is <laughs> it's the Muppet movie. <laughs> yeah, it's like we have to put on a big show and there's high stakes and like so it, yeah. for best in show it's like everyone's competing with one another with waiting for guffman they're all working together but there's this sort of mysterious critic that they're trying to impress right <laughs> and it's like because there's one thing they're all working toward the stakes feel high and it's very clear what the story is but it also leaves lots of room for all the riffing and sort of improvisation that needs to happen as right. well and so like i do feel like that is a little bit missing from this movie of like if they were doing a farewell tour or they were whatever, like you'd get a little bit more of a sense of what it's building toward. And I did find myself sort of asking that in that scene in particular, I was like, okay, why are we at Elvis's grave again? Like what's right. going on here? But, that, but like it was really just there. And then I think right after that is kind of where the story starts picking up. What's really interesting about that to me is that again, listening to these lost criterion commentaries, is that Rob Reiner agrees with well, you. Well, that's high praise. He basically says, <laughs> if I had one, he's like, if I were to go back and redo this, my one sort of regret about the film is that I feel like the plot is very bottom heavy and that we mm. really don't get into the conflict until basically the end of the film. And he says, if I were to go back and do this over again, I would try and introduce that a little bit sooner. Because essentially it's not until Janine shows up that, the the splintering kind of starts to happen but it's once ian quits the band that that's when everything right. really starts to fall apart and then nigel quits the band and then they got they all come back together 
But for me, what I think is so interesting, because I agree with you, but then I think about those movies, Marco, that you're referencing, like Grey Gardens, like oh, yeah. um, G- Gimme Shelter, or even to a certain extent, The Last Waltz. And The Last Waltz is really more a concert film than it is anything right. else. But like, those are films that they don't really go anywhere. And like, even let it be or get back like it culminates in the rooftop concert but it's not like there's necessarily a three-act plot structure to those and that's why i would argue that this is you know there are maybe funnier versions of this you know the christopher guest movies are maybe better structured like a fiction film but that's why i think this is the most authentic fake documentary in that it feels like these movies feel it never feels contrived and part of that, and this is why I want to talk about the editing, is so the editors, Robert Layton and Kent Beta in the commentary, and there's a third editor, Kim Seacrest, the way they would construct the sequences, and I think this is really interesting, and granted, I'm an editor, so like I'm just predisposed to find this interesting, but they didn't cut picture. What they actually would do was they would start with the soundtrack. They would literally cut a scene based on the audio alone, mm. and then they would go back and put picture over it. So... Once they had the sort of story of the scene sounding correctly, then they would just, you know, match up the footage accordingly. And Rob Reiner says, you can forgive a lot of things in movies, but if you have bad sound, that's unforgivable, which is (laughs) I've long agreed with. But it's why in certain scenes, like, they won't necessarily have coverage of someone saying a really great line right and so what do they have to do they either will cut away to a random other cutaway that they happen to have b-roll of or they'll just leave the camera on wherever the camera was at the time that's what makes this thing feel authentic it's the thing that drives me crazy with these sort of fake documentaries that have come and i think the one the one film that does it the worst and it just drove me insane was have either of you seen pop stars never stop never stopping the like the lonely island movie so it's the same premise. It's a boy band that basically they fall apart because the one guy wants to start his solo career and then everything falls apart. And there's a, I'll never forget, there's a scene where they get into an argument and there's like the four members of the band or three members of the band and then their manager and every single one of them has coverage. And yeah. if this were a real documentary, like th- there would maybe be two cameras, maybe three But you wouldn't have that much coverage. They get too caught up in the, well, we have to cut this like a narrative film. But it's like, but you're not a narrative film. You're supposed to be a documentary. And the editors even said, like, the hardest thing on this movie was coverage. Like, half the time we didn't have coverage. And sometimes that meant we had to cut, we just cut a scene entirely because we didn't have enough coverage. Or sometimes it meant that, you know, okay, we're going to leave this scene in because it's really, really good. We just might not be seeing the person who's speaking at this time. Yeah. But that adds this air of authenticity that I think every subsequent sort of mockumentary, which, or faux documentary, or however you want to refer to it, I think doesn't have that effect because they get too caught up in making sure there's enough coverage and Mm -hmm. making sure that everything looks as good as possible. Yeah. And the fact that Spinal Tap kind of looks like shit at points <laughs> is what I think makes the movie work it's so right. well because it lends this air of credibility to it. Yeah, it's the thing that actually The Office does quite well, I think, mm-hmm. is they really give that that same feel of it being like e- either not multicam or just like very limited in terms of their options. And sometimes, you know, you get these whip pans where like someone else is talking and they're yeah. trying to catch up with the action. And yeah. like that whole feel is definitely so much part of the dna of this movie and why it works and i think there's one more thing that the office i'm watching the office right now mm-hmm. re-watching it and one of the things that they also do that's really good 
is when characters don't expect there to be a camera, they do things that they wouldn't do with the camera there. And then when they notice the camera, they're like shocked either at their actions or the fact that it's there. So even within the context of seeing things that maybe we wouldn't see normally because of the amount of cameras, when that does happen, the show itself acknowledges that and is like, yeah, maybe there probably wouldn't be a camera and the characters know that there shouldn't be a camera there. So why is there one? Which again, (laughs) I appreciate it's a small thing. Um, but again, to your point, Adam, this idea that you would have four camera people in a room with four other people arguing, not every <laughs> and like I, and the worst part is like you could turn that funny and that, you know, every character demands there to be a camera on right. them. Right. right? Like right. having a scene like that where they're all like, well, I need my own camera crew. But if you don't even do that, then you're also losing a potentially funny moment and making it seem disingenuous. Yeah. I feel like Modern Family is the perfect example of it not really making any sense. Like it kind of (laughs) works as like a stylistic thing in some ways in that show, but like it's, it's got perfect coverage for the most part. (laughs) Um, And it makes no sense why, why it would be in a documentary style. Like, do you never get any sense of why the hell you're following any of these? The funny people? thing with, with Modern Family is, I guess, I, in the unaired pilot, they do address it. And it's apparently mm. like it's a Norwegian documentary crew shows up to document a modern American family. Mm. See, that but then okay. would make more sense. But then, <laughs> but then it's never addressed in the show proper. Huh. Like, it's a weird, it's just one of those things of like they did it for the pilot. And I guess the, you know, the network was like, eh, it doesn't matter. The network's <laughs> like, no one cares about this. Yeah. The office is already well known. Like, yeah. Arrested, Arrested Development's another great example of this it's shot in that style but it's not really but see, it doesn't have the interview doesn't like right that's the yeah. thing. no and it's it, is that but the it has the narrator it which feel is feel like it should be a documentary like yes. a modern family yes. whereas i i feel like arrested development's just shot in a like a verite style or something like that but mm-hmm. it doesn't ever pretend to be a documentary of any kind so one of the other things that was really interesting in the commentary and on both commentaries, they talk about this is how, again, they would shoot these scenes where they knew what needed to happen, but they didn't necessarily know how they were going to get there. And that was also applied to the camera crew. And mm-hmm. so they said there were moments where Rob Reiner, because he kind of had a sense of who was going to say what, because they had worked this out. He would literally like physically grab the cameraman <laughs> and like move, like basically dolly them around like they were because he's awesome because he's like oh because i know like david's gonna say something so like he would whip them over so that to make sure that they would get that coverage so it's just it's interesting we keep coming back to billy friedkin on this show and Mm -hmm. in the french connection it was the same thing he would block scenes without the camera crew Mm. present so that then when the scene would play out the camera crew would have to be running around to try and keep up with the action and it adds this air of authenticity and documentary realism because the camera is always sort of playing catch up with the events. And again, I think Spinal Tap does a really, really great job of doing that. And then of course you have like the concert footage, which feels like, you know, just regular concert footage. Yeah. All this to say is when they went and did the preview screenings, audiences not only weren't in on the fact that it was supposed to be a documentary (laughs) and some of the complaints were, why is the footage so shaky? (laughs) Yeah. Because they didn't understand what it was trying to do. The people who then did understand it was a documentary. They're like, well, why did you choose to follow this idiot band? Like, why would you not follow, like, the Rolling Stones or Kiss? Like, why these guys? Like, they had no idea that this was all And, like, the Simpsons writers on the commentary talk about their experience of going to see it when it was open in theaters. And they said that, like, most of the people in their audience didn't get it. And, like... Yeah. You know, the, I think Matt Groening in particular was talking about going to a screening 
and there were just like a bunch of like metalheads in the front row being like rock and roll that's what <laughs> Which we is do that's crazy. exactly what we I mean, do but it's like but like they <laughs> didn't know who the band was because the band doesn't exist Man. right yeah very weird but <laughs> it's it is interesting how it has this kind of afterlife because of that i don't know it's mm-hmm. kind of a, a hipster thing in some ways where it's like you're either in on the joke or you're not and the fact that some people aren't in on the joke is part of the joke you know right, <laughs> right. But I think what's what's really important about this film is that it never feels like cynical or insulting or nihilistic or anything. It's so sincere that even when things get dark or when they get difficult or when they're fighting, like it seems like they care so much about the people they're portraying. It's not just a job or a character. It's a person that they've become. And this isn't some sort of like a like the Stanislavski method or method method acting. acting. Yeah. Yeah. Where you're like channeling your past pains to portray this thing. No, it's like they are just so comfortable improvising and being part of that documentary style that it never comes across as anything other than complete honesty and complete sincerity. And I think unless you give yourself up to that, it'll never have the power of something like this is Spinal Tab. Well, uh, and this is the thing people will come up to them and be like, you're doing Jeff Beck or you're doing so-and-so. Sure. And they're like, we weren't doing, we weren't <laughs> it doesn't doing matter, right? Like, they're not trying, yeah. they're not making fun of metal or metal musicians. What they're making fun of is the absurdity of rock and In roll general, culture yeah, yeah. and the idea of celebrity right. and the idea of what happens when you are in a band. They're making fun of the concept of bands as superstars, but they're not making fun of any one particular right. band. And, Again, I think part of what helps is that, like, they are really singing and they're really playing the songs and they wrote these songs and the songs are good. (laughs) Like, it's not to your point, Marco, like it is sincere. Like they they genuinely love this stuff. They just want to poke fun at all of the stuff that makes, you know, rock and roll culture ridiculous. (laughs) But it's not the music and it's not the people performing the music. It's everything else around it. It's the celebrity around it. It's the little sandwiches backstage. (laughs) Right. Like that's. That's what they're making. And I think what's really interesting is that it was made in what, 82, 83, somewhere around that. Because it came out Mm -hmm. in 84, right? Yeah. 84. Yeah. Yeah. So this is kind of, you you know, you have the early to mid 70s where you have all these kind of like prog bands and metal bands and these larger than life things. And then punk comes and kind of decimates that. And I think (laughs) that making this film in the early 80s, also, you know, they never mentioned that in the film, but it's this kind of thing of, this is a band that's waning in popularity because they are no longer part of any sort of cultural zeitgeist or popularity or anything. They're just a band who is still holding on to something that's, you know, like they tried the skiffle thing and the psychedelia thing. And then like, they're just chasing trends. And it's funny that the limo driver says like, this is just a fad, but this is a group of people who has constantly just chased fads. That's what they are. They just chase fads. I'm surprised like Spinal Tap never released like a rap album. (laughs) Like that would have been amazing. (laughs) Um, And so I think that's also important is like contextualizing, like these are very intelligent performers who looked at what was happening in music and were like, oh, this kind of band isn't popular anymore because 
they are pretentious and they are kind of bombastic and they do play seven minute jazz fusion solos. <laughs> so, you know, like the ending with like, this is his jazz fusion section. And they even have that part where he says, um, we can do the Jack the Ripper. So- what is it? Saucy Jack This is again, like three or four years or so after Sweeney Todd, yeah. right? This idea of making yeah. kind of like a rockier like, thing. And it's like, it's so ridiculous that that's a thing that even the people People in Spinal Tap are like, that's a great idea. If the guys in Spinal Tap think it's a good idea, you're doing music wrong. It's true. <laughs> Although pretty much anything where you're like, oh, let's make a like a jokey musical idea. These days, it's probably either already happened it's been done. or it's going to happen next year. Yeah. Like, it's amazing. Yeah, pretty much. How, like, everything's a musical. And, and, and to your point, Adam, you said that, like, they're not making fun of any certain bands or whatever. But, like, it is clear that they're taking from a lot of different musicians. Yeah. But, again, that's also, I think, the point where you can't really pinpoint what it is because they're mashing up something. Yeah. And that in itself is really funny because it just goes to show how many bands kind of believe their own hype and mythology and ideology <laughs> and whatever yeah. it is. And so it can be Zeppelin and the Stones and it can be Black Sabbath and the Scorpions yeah. with like the the covers because the Scorpions released a number of covers that were kind of like, you know, yeah, prepubescent yeah. girls on the covers of albums. You're like, what the hell? Why would you ever do this, you <laughs> sociopaths? And then like, you know. It's not the, the 1960s, it's guys. Not the 1960s. <laughs> yeah, right. And so again, like they're taking from so many different things things and just kind of pulling the most ridiculous elements from so many of these performers i mean stonehenge and mythology and druids and like you know <laughs> glam and prog and death leopard and the umlauts are like motorhead and so you can't just say that they're ever making fun of a person they're just as again what you said making fun of this yeah. idea this cult of personality around musicians and around mm. artists that you know, they were given free reign in the 70s of just kind of like, here's a lot of drugs and here's a lot of power and here's a lot of money. And then they made, you know, 17 sweet 14 part rock operas. And you're like, oh, this is why the Ramones destroyed this. Because <laughs> like yeah. no one wanted to listen to your jazz fusion <laughs> project. <laughs> um, we want to hear a two minute song. And I think that's kind of the power of this film that when you watch it in retrospect, you're like, oh, they made it at a time when these kind of bands were on kind of like the decline or on the out even because audiences just didn't want to see that anymore. And it's funny that a film about that has become like a cult classic in all of this. It has its own yeah. mythology now. Uh, it's like a fake movie based on a fake band who is a real band who releases real albums, who doesn't really release real albums, et cetera, et cetera. The other interesting thing that you brought up is like the drug culture, because they talk about this in the commentary as well, is that there's only like one or two scenes where you actually see people imbibing in right. drugs. And they said that was a very conscious decision. A, because they were just like, we, we don't want to have like them constantly doing drugs. Yeah. Like it's just, it's almost it's cliche. Kind of easy. <laughs> but they also said they're like, these guys wouldn't want that to be on, on film. film. Right. Like it wouldn't make sense <laughs> if you saw them doing drugs because they would be aware of the cameras and then they'd be like, oh, don't film this. Don't <laughs> right. film this. So there's a story reason for why you sure. never see them doing drugs. They're like, drugs are obviously all around. Like that's how you explain all of this. But the, the last waltz is a perfect yeah. example of this of like literally they had to rotoscope out Coke. the rock of cocaine <laughs> in neil young's nostril because he'd just done a bump before going on stage but those are the subtle details right. all of the things that these brilliant writers thought through and why i think 
it creates this film that ultimately rises above everything that sort of has come after it because I think everything that comes after it just sees the documentary form as a structure but they're not actively saying if this were real how would they do this I think the thing is too that like none of those movies are parodying documentaries as much as they are the topic of their documentary right like this is actually taking on the music documentary as part of what it's satirizing right right? and and you know in no place more obviously than the director being on film which is a very (laughs) you know it's like it's martin scorsese right I yeah. mean, that's literally his name is Marty. Marty. Yeah, that's literally <laughs> yeah. the reference point. And apparently, Martin Scorsese was like not happy about it for a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that's a, that's a good, like literally the first note that I wrote out of the, all of my notes is satire of both metal and documentary. Yeah, and like, yeah, and well, like literally, that's the first and, first and note that I wrote. So totally. they they say like this opening gag is it's very subtle, but they're like if you watch like when Marty DeBerge's doing his intro, they're like. We literally have every single piece of film equipment we own <laughs> is behind yeah. him. Lights and they're like, and all the you would things. never no. do that. But like, it's true. And it's like, it's a very subtle gag. But it's like, again, it's to show the absurdity of all this. <laughs> like he walks by like a thousand right. lights. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's riffing on that. And and again, I you know, like you say, Nate, those documentaries where the documentarian sort of inserts himself a yeah. little more than maybe he should. Right. This is riffing on that as well. So yeah, because like the thing about The Last Waltz and again, like it's a good movie. But in some of those scenes, Martin Scorsese is being as pretentious as the musicians oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. in the questions mm-hmm. he's asking. And, and, and those course. are on film as much as the responses are. And so I feel like yeah. there's a bit of, of playing in, on that. And, uh, totally. you know, he pulls it off pretty well. <laughs> but I think what's also great is, is that this movie is to that point of putting all the equipment you can kind of unashamed in its theatricality and in yeah. its cinematicness mm-hmm. i couldn't believe how amazing the transition is from their concert when nigel shows up to japan where the drummer yes. spontaneously combusts mick shrimpton goes up in smoke and then you're you can hear drums and it's just a cut to their new drummer joe mama besser <laughs> and you're in japan i mean that rivals yeah. lawrence of arabia in 2001 <laughs> for best match cut ever it's like Joe Mama Besser, and it just says his name and drummer. And yeah, th- that's I mean, like that is so cinematic, and also yeah. making fun of that cinematic form of like yeah. cutting for you know weeks or months later, and a new character, and you're in a new place. It's just it, it's just unabashed in its ability to take this classic cinematic thing of of match cutting to somewhere deep in space or or to another country <laughs> and completely subverting it to something incredibly funny. And incredibly, <laughs> you know, timely because, you know, Mick Shrimpton, RIP, he spontaneously combusts again. Yeah. And we have to bring in Joe Mama Besser. <laughs> and like, I mean, that is just a testament to Rob Reiner saying, yeah, somebody who also inserts themselves into film wants to show that they understand film. Yeah. And we'll do this yeah, like exactly. a grand old cut. Um, doesn't have to do it. But wants to to show kind of, oh, look at the cinematicness of this piece that I am constructing, Uh, which then leads to those like final couple of interviews, which, again, over the credits, having interviews. So funny. You know, that kind of stuff. It just gives it that sense of both. It's very cinematic, but also feels so real. And again, that's where 
all of that humor comes from. Well, and they and said they that, that is actually a, a riff on what they were trying to avoid was the Smokey and the Bandit movies. Those movies would, over the credits, they would have all these outtakes, but they stopped feeling like outtakes and they started to feel like they were these contrived uh. moments of Dom DeLuise trying to make... Burt Reynolds laugh. So they were like, we didn't want that. We're just going to put more of these interview footage. Like, again, more of, more of the thing that we, it starts with we couldn't really such fit a it in anywhere else. It starts with such a banger from Harry Shearer. Too, Harry Shearer. Where he's, the where first he's talking yeah. about, what is it? I feel it's like, it's more like going, going to a, a national park or something. And there's, you know, they preserve the moose. And that's, that's my childhood up there on stage is that moose, you know, and and so I, when you're playing, I, you feel like a preserved moose on stage. Yeah. <laughs> Marco, I wanted to ask you, because since you're now an admitted metalhead, what do you think of the music in this? Like, we kind of haven't really talked about the music all that much, but there's quite a few songs in this. They did put out an album. What's your favorite uh, Spinal Tap singer? I love Stonehenge. That thing is doom metal at its finest. It's so doomy. Stonehenge, where the demons dwell, where the banshees live and they do live well. That, again, is like that kind of Black Sabbath thing of like hoods and being dark. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I know, I, and then, of course, it turns into the like four minute pan flute. The mandolin so there's like the mandolin and the flutes. <laughs> and I really like that just because it gives them the sense of kind of like we're deep we're writing about Stonehenge and we're writing these kind of darker pieces right. or not these kind of like pop metal jams that we've been writing thus far <laughs> and yet it's also the most ridiculous song apart from of course the jazz fusion track and I think the music is really well written they definitely like yeah, more of like a hard rock edge which is I think why I like Stonehenge the most because it definitely gets into more right. of a kind of dark metal thing and which is also right. i don't know what song is in the simpsons episode but that song is incredible yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that must be on the album that came out of yeah the- i think it yeah. must be on break like the wind yeah Beyond the ghosts of- <laughs> i can't even say without laughing because the lyrics are also so like crying to heaven and then it becomes this kind of big huge epic jam and you're like yeah these guys wrote really good songs and as uh, you mentioned earlier they clearly knew how to play their instruments because yeah. they, they can parody metal in a way that is also good. It's not just a joke, which, again, at that time would have been such a novel concept because, again, metal was big-ish, but not to what it would become in the 80s with the hair metal stuff. Their influences clearly include things like Thin Lizzy and Black Sabbath mm-hmm. and, like, obviously Scorpions, but also a bit of, like, Man o' War. Do you, do you guys know that band? They're kind of like, no. they're basically a painted album cover of people. Um, they wear the same thing, kind of Harry Shearer's thing. They were like, you know, oiled up right. loincloths, and they play this very kind of like tough guy metal uh, about dungeons and dragons and wizards and druids and stuff awesome. and um but you know they also had the harry Shearer kind of fetish where sometimes where you're like that fetish where is it supposed to be like what what is the thing a um, leather daddy look little leather daddy look yeah. a little bit of uh bdsm action going yeah. on which is always good for metal but yeah definitely they bring in a lot of glam and prog and hard rock which i think is awesome to see in a film from 1984 again for my knowledge one of the earliest representation of metal on screen. And yeah, obviously it kind of like yeah. is a funny version of it. But again, metal can be fun and it can be funny. And 
especially mainstream metal, which is what Spinal Tap is trying to be, it's clearly right, a bit yeah. more performative. And while yeah. I was watching it, I thought of Slipknot. It's <laughs> sure. like, you know, like this idea of this band that that half of it is kind of performance art almost yeah. versus just like playing music. Right. And obviously, like Slipknot takes their music very seriously and writes these songs that are emotional and powerful and loud and aggressive but they're also nine adult men wearing boiler suits and masks on yeah. stage while like fire <laughs> spins around them. And I've seen them live. It is a trip. Um, I was taking notes the whole time. I must've looked like such a narc, but like <laughs> it, it's got that kind of performative, almost silly element coupled with music that isn't. Yeah. Um, right. Which some of Spinal Tap's music tries to do the same thing to be this kind of serious, almost like better than metal. And then it ends up mm. being more silly than it is because of the thing they put in front of it, which is a tiny stone henge. And right. yeah, there's like that <laughs> juxtaposition of trying to be serious while still giving people a show like Alice Cooper, um, mm. you know, and I think that kind of like shock rock thing, even though Spinal Tap aren't shocking, they try to give a performance and yeah. perform for people and make it a big show and make it so it's not just four dudes on stage playing music. And that's almost where the further parody comes in of like, oh yeah, this this is ridiculous. Why are they doing this? Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me a bit of The Simpsons in that part of the reason why The Simpsons parodies things is that often they do it because they actually love the thing. Yeah, yeah I mean, right? that, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and so it's like, all, especially all the movie parodies, right? It's like, they don't parody Citizen Kane because they think it's stupid. They they parody Citizen Kane because they want to recreate it in did their own medium, which notes? happens to be comedy, right? <laughs> did and it's did like, you look you at my notes, Nate? <laughs> I literally <laughs> wrote, no one makes an entire episode parodying Citizen Kane because they think it's stupid. Yes. There's respect there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. They're not taking the piss. But you get that no. sense. Like from from you know, Spinal Tap, it's like on one hand, of course they're making fun, but it's like also comedy is their medium. And like they also clearly do have an appreciation for this music as well. And they kind of want to recreate it in their own mold. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think this idea of like irreverent humor is all through Spinal Tap where it's like there is a sense of poking fun, but I don't think it's making fun, which I think there yeah. is a difference between that. It's like, yes. don't take yourself so seriously. You make music and get paid to like travel the world and, and play a guitar on stage. Chill out, Van Halen. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like neoclassical stuff like Ingve Malmsteen. I'm sure they knew who that was. And this idea of like a neoclassical ruffled guitar player playing with the London Symphony. New Orchestra, right. which is again another thing they mentioned in the movie. I want to do an acoustic album with the London Philharmonic. And <laughs> right. you're like, of course you yeah. do, because that's what like Deep Purple did and stuff like that. Or well, and then of course, like Nigel's when he's like, Oh, I do with my solos, and they show him playing it's the Jimmy Page thing of where he played a guitar with a bow, so he plays a guitar <laughs> with a full on violin. But yeah. the best gag is when he then retunes the violin, the violin and then starts. <laughs> And, you know, you, you said that, like, they don't take the piss. I think that does take the piss out of it. But I think that's because they, as writers, are like, how could anyone take themselves seriously doing exactly, this? Yeah. Like, you're playing guitar with a bow, and it's atonal and horrible sounding. And, and you're just like, oh, yeah, like, I'm a god. <laughs> and I think it's it's also trying to, like, take people who see themselves as kind of these mystical fingers down a peg to be like, yeah. you're a person, yeah. like... You're not better than your audience. You're not better than other performers. You know, like, don't be so pretentious. <laughs> like, yeah, totally. And don't strive to be so pretentious. <laughs> so, you know, like, we need to write more songs 
that know that they're funny, which is, I think, what they're also doing with the what's the song about the the big bottom ladies? What, That's my favorite song. Okay, yeah. So I was big gonna, bottom. Big bottom. Ask, yeah, so Big Bottom is kind of like a Fat Bottom Girls by Queen. Totally. Well, I think the yep. people, like the writers here, probably thought Queen is a band who makes kind of punchy, aggressive, metal-ish music, but doesn't take themselves seriously. Like, it's campy right. to them, and metal is very campy. And uh, I, yeah. I think that that's almost like an homage to Queen. And so, again, yeah. you're bringing in so many different influences and bands and genres and ideas, and you're just like... How did they fit that in a song called Big Bottom? <laughs> and I feel like it's such a good example of how the comedy works in this movie. I feel like where like Big Bottom is not that different than Fat Bottom Girls. No, not at right? all. It's, like, it's just they're just pushing it a tiny bit further to make it just more on the nose, you know. But like that's like so much of this movie where it's actually pretty realistic for the most part. And they're just pushing it just a little bit further so you start to see that it's funny and ridiculous, right. you know? <laughs> yeah. The guitar yeah. collection, for example, like that. Yeah. <laughs> no, don't don't even look at it. it just you can't know. It can't be done. This is it can't be a played. 59 less pole. <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing where it's like Jimmy Page played that and Slash played that. <laughs> Coming back to Slash, you know these guys who are like this guitar. Oh man. It's like you if you're good at guitar, you can make anything sound good. Give me a yeah. break like you know <laughs> i don't need to pay a fifteen thousand dollars for a guitar to sound like jimmy page because i never will i'll never right. sound like jimmy page no matter how expensive my guitar is i think that's another thing it's like do you play all these guitars <laughs> like even rob reiner in there is like, <laughs> yeah, like why like, would you need this many you don't even i mean he literally has one with a price tag on it <laughs> <laughs> look it's still got the price tag on it <laughs> i i think what you said marco is so astute in that it's like there's a lot of love there for what they're doing but they're needling it just in the places where it makes <laughs> right. sense to needle it and and recognizing that like some of this stuff is a little bit right. ridiculous and that's okay like there's nothing wrong with that and it's okay to laugh <laughs> yeah. at that and i really appreciate and no one who that. puts this much effort like anyone who puts this much effort into a film cares about the subject you're not gonna write yeah. songs learn songs record songs get all these costumes spend all this time in character film for what hundreds of hours at a time because you think it's dumb right, right. <laughs> like there's no yeah. way uh, you clearly have some affinity and some like or love for what you're portraying i think the simpsons is the same way because yeah. like things like south park and family guy also obviously do what the simpsons have done but i find them to be just like a bit cynical at times and a bit nihilistic at times and the simpsons like spinal tap are very different like the irreverence comes out of reverence uh, like they love these things and so they poke fun at them and prod them and parody them and as nate said like push it just a little bit past to show like you know if you made rosebud <laughs> into a into a teddy bear it would be kind of ridiculous because it's a teddy bear and you could kind of get another one and it doesn't matter and he gets trapped in ice and transported over you know 70 yeah. years yeah. and that sort of connection to the material that you are parodying or referencing or whatever it is shows that sort of reverence of i owe this something and here's me paying it forward and paying back at the same time for sure adam did you do you have a favorite song or a favorite joke from the movie 
Uh, favorite songs. I mean, I love Tonight I'm Gonna Rock You Tonight. <laughs> I love Big Bottom. I love Stonehenge. I love Cups and Cakes, the song from when they were kids that, that plays in the background. I think the songwriting in this, to your point, it's not lazy. Like, it's not Weird Al level of writing. Yeah. And I don't mean that because I love Weird Al. But, like, th- these it, are originals. They're... they're tr- yeah, they're trying to write legitimate songs with a comedic slant in some cases, and, and in some cases, not so much a comedic slant. Like, Tonight I'm Gonna Rock You, there's no real comedy in that song, yeah. whereas Big Bottom is very clearly, like, trying to push the levels of taste. <laughs> the the bigger the cushion, the deeper the pushing. Yeah. Like, okay. Um, it's not the but, 60s. <laughs> yeah, it's not the 60s, guys. Um, That's going to become one of our catchphrases. <laughs> That's a really good catchphrase. This is in the 60s. This is in the 60s. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, in terms of favorite jokes or scenes, like I love this movie. Like it's so hard to pick pick okay. one favorite thing my, from it. My so. favorite moment happens to be a Harry Shearer line, so I have to bring it up. But it's okay. the post Stonehenge scene where they're kind of debriefing and oh, pissed yeah. off in the in the room, and they're kind of bickering, and they have this big fight, and then at the very end of the scene, <laughs> Derek Smalls is like, "Can I raise a practical question at this point?" We're going to do Stonehenge tomorrow. No, we're not going to f***ing do Stonehenge. That always gets me. And he also has a good line earlier in that scene where he's sort of like, well, maybe if you just changed the choreography, then you wouldn't <laughs> trod on the Stonehenge. Like, what, what's, I don't think the issue is the choreography. I think the issue is that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's just fuck this movie, yeah. man. Um, okay, well, that brings us to the parts that seem like Simpsons jokes but aren't. I already alluded to the the opening where he's walking by every piece of film equipment. That to me feels very much like a Troy McClure oh, yeah. intro. <laughs> totally. Like, yeah, nice. yeah. you know, and really like Troy McClure could have hosted this film and it wouldn't have been completely out of place. And then like all the album titles kind of have like a Simpson-y sort of like it's because they're trying to be punny, like intravenous de Milo. Like that sounds like something yes. a Simpsons writer would have written. But I think the most Simpson-y joke is the scene where they're in the limo and the partition slowly goes up. And all I can think of is my favorite joke. Right. Can I come to? Right. Can I <laughs> come like, to? No. <laughs> no. And then just slowly oh. rolls up the window. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, that literally feels like I'll be like right it's back. The... <laughs> <laughs> That's not my mother. I'll be right back. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And then, of course, the double neck bass, which like I feel like at some point someone told me that like a double neck bass makes no sense because like there's no need for it. Like the purpose of a double guitar is that like you can have two different Mm. tunings, but like that's not really a thing for basses. And Harry Shearer actually says in the commentary, the reason it's in the film is he went to a guitar store and he saw it and he's like, I thought it was the stupidest looking (laughs) instrument in the world. And I knew that Derek Smalls needed to have one. So he like then went and bought one, and that's why it's in the movie. The other thing about the the double bass, I'm trying to remember which movie it was because now I've like watched like two music documentaries and then this. I think it's in the last waltz. I think at some point there's a double bass as well. But it's or it's, it's, like, it's, like, it's, it's like it's not like a, a double bass. bass it's like our combo or yes, yes. it's it's at the kind of at the very thing. end when they play their last. I think like, it's a, in I think the studio like a segment. Harp. <laughs> Like, yeah, and Robbie Roberts yeah, is playing. Like the, the, and I have the, no idea it's what like it a, is. A, but... Instrument from like the fourteen hundreds, like a lute. Right. Yeah, it's a lute it's... and a guitar, and like yes, so yeah. It's it looks like something yeah, like that, perfect. like a lute and a guitar yeah. fusion instrument. <laughs> it looks absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> yes, I think I think yes. I, I, what I 
didn't realize the first couple of times I watched this movie is that they reference Yes, I Can by Sammy Davis Jr. And as soon as they said it, I heard the line in my head when Bart is talking to Rabbi Herschel Krastovsky, and he goes, that's from Yes, I Can by Sammy Davis Jr. And that's all I could think of. And there's no way that that reference doesn't come from this movie. It's such like a specific mm. thing, but it's just like... Yes, I can by Sammy Davis. It's even the way he, they say it. He's like, is that Yes, I can? And he's yeah, like, it's yeah. from Yes, I can by Sammy Davis Jr. <laughs> and the only reason I even know it is from The Simpsons, never read a line of that book. So as soon as I heard it in this, I was like, what a random little thing to reference. And I quote that a lot. I, I Yes, for I can. Reason, if Frank I tells me quote. it's okay. <laughs> Frank Sinatra says it's okay. Yeah, exactly. You know what, the, you know what that book should have been called? Great yeah. line. Um, I, you know, honestly, other than the things that you already pointed out, I couldn't think of a lot of other things from the movie that felt very Simpsons-y. I actually think the comedy is very different. The Simpsons has a kind of vaudevillian sensibility. It's very punchline-y in a certain way that, like, this movie is just not at all. Right. Even w when they have Spinal Tap on the show... I didn't feel like it, it felt that much like Spinal Tap. Part of it is that, like, they can't be as crass <laughs> as, as this movie is and, like, go right. the places that yeah. it goes. But the vibe is so different to me. No, I totally agree. Like, the form dictates the humor. It's the little throwaway lines or, like, the humor of the absurdity of the situations and stuff. Whereas, yeah, The Simpsons, it is a bit more gag-heavy or punchline-heavy, whereas... This is more like there's some wordplay with like the Isle of Lucy, which is obviously a play on I Love yeah. Lucy. But it is a definitely a very different tone of humor. But I and I guess in to a certain extent, like them getting lost backstage, like the way it plays out is not Simpson-esque. But that right. is a kind of thing that you could see happening to Homer of like he would <laughs> right. go to like the Super Bowl and then get lost and never manage to make it to the. Oh, yeah, because they run. Yeah, the game and they because, run around the hallways. Right. It's got. They do that in that episode, yeah. right? They keep running in that episode, yeah, a little hallways. bit. Yeah, yeah. So like, the situations are maybe there's some interplay yeah. there, but in terms of how those situations play out, is it would be very, very yeah. I feel like part of it is like The Simpsons pride itself so much on being a kind of laughs per minute type of show, yeah. And this movie almost thrives in the silences and awkwardness. That, like, The Simpsons just doesn't have the luxury of having those moments because it's a half-hour show. It's less yeah. than a half-hour show. So it's just constantly yeah. trying to, like, cram in jokes in a way that this movie doesn't. A lot of the humor of this movie is reading between the lines. Right. Or, or, or as I said, the lines that go unheard the first 32 right. times you watch the movie. Right. And then you finally catch it and you're like, oh my God, like that's, that is a hilarious line. I can't believe I've never caught that before. Totally. One of my favorite lines, and they do point it out in the commentary, and I, like, I never really noticed it until they pointed it out. And now it makes me laugh every, every single time is uh, when they run into the other band at the hotel oh, yeah. and the other band's manager yeah. goes, well, we'd love to stay in chat, but we uh, got to go sit in the lobby and wait for the yeah. window. <laughs> <laughs> and then they get so pissed because he used to be their opening act. And they're like, we used to have to yeah. come out while people were still booing. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, although there is I that just, Simpsons so I, episode behind the laughter. Oh, and yeah. I feel like this yes. predates like the behind the music stuff. That would be these kind of like salacious looks at bands and like next. Yeah, and it's totally. always like after the break. Their drug addiction, you know, yes. and it's just yeah. like, yeah, and so like that kind of because again, as you mentioned, the form dictates kind of the humor, mm. and that episode definitely has a yeah. thing where they're like looking into the camera and speaking and giving their own version of events. But 
No, you nailed it with the screen and and the woman who <laughs> Abe thinks is, is Marge's mom. That is a hundred percent. It's my sister's favorite Simpsons joke. Like she quotes it to me all the time. Like she just thinks it's so funny. I mean, oh, I think it's, it's hilarious too. And it's the line read on the old lady as the as it's going up when she just goes. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Okay, well, on that note, Nate, how did this movie do? I mean, I I know I'm asking rhetorically, but could you tell our audience how this movie it's, did? It is interesting. So this movie did not do great. No, it I mean, did it not. It kind of depends on how you look at it a little bit. So the budget was only $2 million, and the movie made right. $4.7 million. So it okay. doubled its budget, right? However, right. <laughs> um, you know, if you look at the movies for 1984, year this came out, this movie comes in 129th. Um, not bad, not bad, not bad. <laughs> we cracked the top 150. Yeah, sure. That's one way of looking at it. Hilariously, it actually beat out Return of the Jedi. Which probably been out for because, what, like three years? Yeah, probably because <laughs> it came out in 1983. So it's late in the year. So it beat it out on the yeah. on the 1984 uh, calendar. <laughs> so anyway, weeks okay. after it was released. <laughs> right, right, right. In its 73rd week, it beat out <laughs> Return of the Jedi. <laughs> Exactly. A better way of looking at it is it almost lost to Return of the Jedi, which was in its, yeah, like whatever, 73rd week. Small Um, victories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So it didn't do super well. For context, though, other movies that that came out this year, the top five, Ghostbusters, the the movie of the year. Temple of Doom, right? You have your your Indiana Jones. Gremlins. Joe Dante. Yep. The Karate yeah. Kid, which we've covered on this podcast, of course. Yeah, great. Uh, great and film. Police Academy, a, a, a sort of favorite punching bag of The Simpsons. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's it, it goes to partly like what you were saying is just that like I don't think people totally knew what to make of this. Right. A lot of people no. just didn't get it, and then there was sort of a small group of people that got the humor, the joke. Like maybe it was the people who kind of had a better grasp of like the music scene and what was going on or were already familiar with some of the the people and their humor in the movie, but it just didn't totally land and kind of very slowly develop this cult following over time. Yeah. It's definitely a movie that I think about my relationship to it and how I introduced it to our friend Bill. And you know, like it's one of those movies where like someone discovers it and then is like passes it along and then passes it along. It is the quintessential VHS era film where like it's it found its legs on home video and just being passed around and sort of builds up this mythos and and again like you see the american film institute top 100 funniest moments and you see this goes to 11 and you're like (laughs) what is this thing i gotta i want to see more of this but i'm not surprised that it didn't like sweep at the box office especially when like you say ghostbusters and gremlins are tearing up the charts this is the antithesis of yeah. that. In terms of humor, especially, it's like this isn't accessible humor necessarily. Right. You know, I think it is yeah. very funny, but it takes a little bit of like you need a, a lot of context, I guess, to understand the humor, whereas like those are pretty funny on the face of it. Um Academy Awards, not surprisingly, it's the same story. <laughs> it's like this didn't receive a nomination. I mean, it is kind of wild when you think about like how many top 100 lists this movie appears on. That yeah, it got right. nothing. Now, again, for some context, Best Picture went to Amadeus by Milos Forman, awesome. uh, which, you know, a great movie. Awesome. Uh, I don't think <laughs> I don't know if I would ever put this in a contender for Best Movie of 1984, but it's kind of interesting <laughs> to think about. 
this is kind of a weird category, but the best music uh, original song score, Oof. I didn't really know that this was a thing, which I'm assuming was for musicals, right? Basically movies that had multiple songs, went to Purple right. Rain that Sick. year. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, of yeah. course. Which, you know, again, yeah. also a pretty great movie. And similarly, the lineup for original song, which I feel like this actually could be a contender for. This is what won. I just called to say I love you by Stevie Wonder for the movie <laughs> The okay. Woman in Red. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> a movie I've never heard of, but I, I mean, everybody right, knows exactly. that song. So. <laughs> Some other nominees, though. Against All Odds, Take a Look at Me Now. Bill Collins. Phil yeah, Collins, Phil Collins yep. from the movie called Against, Against All Odds, a movie I've never seen. Which, by the way, that movie is wild. Yeah. It's like a neon noir film with like it. You you hear the song and you see the single cover of them on the beach kissing, and it's this kind of like yeah. violent, dark, noirish film that that song uh-huh. makes no sense why it's in that movie <laughs> but the only reason it's in that movie is because when they asked him to do an original song i don't know why i know so much about this song i love this song <laughs> phil collins was like song. well i have a song that has the phrase against all odds in it and he sure. just gave them that and it was nominated <laughs> for an oscar i'm like phil you are perfect and yeah that, that's the only reason that's, Nailed it. that's why that song is in that movie take a look at me now well you know it is yeah. it is 1984 so <laughs> yeah, you know what could we say what a year <laughs> yeah so we also got of course ghostbusters um yep. you know of course yeah banger. banger it is a banger and it's also the most popular movie of the year so sure the last two are both from footloose of course of course of course <laughs> so we got footloose itself which you know yeah great song and Kenny loggins l- Yep. Yeah. Kenny yep. Loggins. And let's hear it for the boy. That's a great which, song too. Oh yeah, let's hear it. Sure. It's not my favorite movie. Yeah, it's a great so song. like I'm not I don't know that song, but Oh no, the movies. Yeah, Foot- the movies yeah. Not great, oh, but come on. Footloose is a great she, song. She takes the jacket and it says dance your ass off. <laughs> oh, man, that's such a great that is seminal. <laughs> yeah. But but I yeah, I gotta ask something, that's for I sure. I gotta ask though. You know, do you feel like there is a Spinal Tap song that should be on this list? Do we need two Footloose songs or, or should there be a Spinal Tap song in here? I think Stonehenge deserves it more than Let's Hear It okay. the Boy. Yeah, 100 percent. Like, I get that Ghostbusters is the biggest hit of the year, but like Ghostbusters is a fucking novelty song. So like, why can't Stonehenge? be? Yeah, totally. I mean, like, give me a break. <laughs> so is that Stevie Wonder song? <laughs> it's also I mean, totally well, a novelty. Enough. Isn't that the the song that in High Fidelity? He's like, there's no way your daughter likes this song. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I, it, of all those songs, I'd give it to Phil Collins if I'm being yeah, honest. That should have won. I can't uh, believe it. But, That's a but if Ghostbusters gets to be on the list, then I think stonehenge absolutely can stand toe-to-toe with ghostbusters yeah. once again we get so. two songs from footloose that seems like a yeah it's unnecessary is the full title no. tonight i'm gonna rock you tonight mm. i believe it's tonight i'm gonna rock you brackets, brackets tonight, yeah, yeah. tonight. <laughs> that could have been on the oscars that's a great song that's like a crunchy good riff it's got that yeah. thin lizzy thing yeah. going for it like it's actually a well-written song. I would put that in. That, that's, I think, of all the songs in the film, that's the song where, like, if you just, like, played it, like, surreptitiously, nobody would know that it's, totally. like, I think someone would think band. it was Kiss. Like, it, yeah. Yeah, like, it, fe- yeah, it feels like late period Kiss. Well, not late period, but, like, of, of the, the era, era Kiss. Yeah. Whereas, 
Stonehenge and Big Bottom, like they're a little yeah. too tongue in cheek. Yeah. Tongue in cheek, so to speak. <laughs> okay. Right, so nice. I'm sorry. <laughs> On that note, I did pull a couple reviews. One good one, one bad one for this movie. So the good review, I feel like I had to go to a British source for this just because, mm. you know, we have some British characters and it just felt like the right tone for yeah. it. So this is a review from William Thomas at Empire Magazine. All right. Uh, he says, this is piss taking elevated to the level of high art. <laughs> and what makes it such a seamlessly hilarious ride is the knowing attention to detail the ball-crushing spandex trousers, the uh, <laughs> maniacal public school manager, the Yoko-esque disruptive girlfriend, the pompous, preposterous lyrics, and above all, the all-encompassing fug of self-delusion that compels them to carry on. <laughs> Which I thought... Now, see, they should have they, they should have put that on the yeah, criteria. That's Jack. a beautifully that's, that's a great, written yeah, review. <laughs> I can't right. even tell if that's the good or bad one. <laughs> <laughs> It's loving. I think it's definitely coming from a loving place. So this is the negative review, and this is from Dave Kerr at the Chicago Reader. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there weren't a lot of negative reviews, to be fair. The material is consistently clever and funny, though ultimately the attitudes are too narrow to nourish a feature-length film. Though Reiner has wisely introduced the elements of a plot toward the end, yeah. 82 minutes is still a long haul for a film defined only by derisiveness. Interesting. I mean, you know, to be fair, it's like he's pulling out the one thing that we also called out, which is just like, yeah, maybe the plot yeah. could kick in a little earlier, but sure. I don't know if that was enough for me to kind of, you know, tune out for this movie. Yeah, I mean, I, the one thing I will say, and granted, like, I do love this movie, but like, as I said, I watched it for probably the 40th time. <laughs> And yeah, like I kind of was like multitasking at some points, but for the most part, I still just watched the yeah. whole yeah. thing. Like it's a brisk 82 minutes. Considering I've seen it as many times as I have, it, it sort of shocked me how much I actually like was still compelled to just keep watching everything <laughs> unfold. I think it's, you know, the definition of a cult classic for sure. Totally. Which also sure. kind of speaks to its legacy, right? Like you mentioned that there is supposedly a Spinal Tap 2 coming out this year. We'll see what happens. I think it was sort of delayed by the strikes last year. It was supposed to come out like in March or something like that. Yeah, I, I, this is not a film where I feel like we need a legacy sequel, <laughs> yeah. but um, it's interesting. They talked in the commentary how originally the pl they they're like, if we were to do a sequel, we know what we want to do. We wanted to to do like a parody of Help and the other sort of like mm. fictional Beatles films. Right. But then they said the film was a flop and they weren't going to give us any money to make <laughs> right. that. So I don't think this new sequel is going to go in that direction. Like I've seen a couple of like on-set photography type things and it looks like it's very much like they're in the wigs and they're playing aged Spinal Tap. So I, th I have a feeling it's going to be another one of these like documentary Christopher Guest type movies but who knows maybe they're going to take it in a completely different direction and surprise yeah. us but, well and now I feel um, like with their reputation they could actually get real cameos from musicians and stuff like that mm -hmm. which could be kind of f the fun of it is if they actually had real musicians interacting with Spinal Tap oh yeah I yeah. feel like that could kind of take it in a fun direction but we'll see unfortunately I'm not sure if this is gonna work out. <laughs> but you know Godspeed. You also have, of course, like the other movies of Christopher Guest and mockumentaries at large, all of which we've been talking about. So that's a huge thing. But there was one movie that I suspect you probably have not thought about as a sort of legacy of this movie. Are you familiar with the movie Small Soldiers? Yeah. Yes. 
<laughs> I mean, I haven't seen it, but I I remember when it's it came out. The only action figures that come to life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and there was a great PC game uh, that my, my friend Tyler had that I remember playing. <laughs> I had that on VHS 100%. I know I owned that movie and watched it way more than I should have. Yes. I definitely, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I saw this movie in theaters when it came out. Uh, I believe it's also a Joe Dante movie. It is um, a Joe Dante, really? yeah. Oh yeah. But but did yeah. you know that the Gorgonites in Small Soldiers are voiced by the cast of Spinal Tap? No, I didn't. Oh, no. There you go. Yeah. You got Christopher Guest, McKean, and Shearer all in there playing the voices of the Gorgonites. Meanwhile, the soldiers are all played apparently by the cast of the Dirty Dozen. Oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> so a little kind of like yeah, weird yeah. pop culture uh, connection there for you. <laughs> Wow, I did not. That's so funny. All right. Well, I don't know if I actually have to ask, but this is the part where we kind of wrap it up and just give our final verdict on the movie. So, uh, Marco, Adam, do the strengths outweigh the weaknesses for you. Would you recommend this movie and to whom? Yeah, absolutely. It's essential. It's if for anyone who's ever seen any modern comedy <laughs> that's been on TV in the last, like, I don't know what, 20 years almost give or take whenever like that first office came out i mean maybe you won't get all of the references and all of the kind of humor because it's about like metal of the 80s but i think it just for the sake of having watched those shows if you like those shows this is an absolute must it's funny it's weird it's irreverent uh the songs are really good surprisingly um and i don't know i just think like especially if you're someone who likes music movies this is one of those like top 10 films either about music or with music or anything to do with music biographical fictional documentary or otherwise this is up there as like you know top 10 next to some of the you know things that we mentioned like the dylan one and the mazel's brothers films i love this movie i think it's great and as someone again who's like both a huge lover of metal but sees why it could also be very funny <laughs> this has just always been in my wheelhouse and ever since i first saw it i was like you know it's not something i revisit every year or anything like that but as soon as i saw that it was available for this podcast as one of the potential watches i was like oh yeah absolutely i want to do spinal tap so <laughs> I, I come back to it and i think that the simpsons episode does a very good job with those characters not the best episode of all time but just the way that they morph them into cartoon characters and the lines that they give them and some of those visual gags it's like that this is a great one to punch and yeah absolutely totally recommend this is spinal tap love it nate what about you would would you recommend it i mean yeah i would definitely recommend it it is one of those movies that kind of like it grows on you over time too the more times you've watched it the more you'll appreciate it i think the first time i watched it i probably didn't fully get it much like you were talking about adam where it's just like yeah it takes you a while to get the feel of it but you know yeah. now having watched it a few times i really do enjoy it and i think it's again you know we were talking about this with westworld it's just this crazy rosetta stone where it's like like you were saying marco if you want to understand modern comedy like just comedy today it's such an important touch point that's Absolutely. influenced so many people so i definitely think it's worth going back and checking out from the sort of like film and tv history standpoint but it is also you know a brisk movie that's funny and entertaining and the music is actually legitimately good <laughs> that is something that is 
often missing, I feel like, from these kinds of parodies is like anytime it's a comedy, but someone's supposed to be really good at something, they're often not that good at it, <laughs> right? Or it's just not believable. And this is definitely not that. They actually seem like real musicians because they are able to actually play music. So I think it's it's definitely very unique and worth checking out. And Adam, what about you? How does it hold up for you? No, this movie sucks. Don't see it. No, of course. Yeah, of course. It, like, I, <laughs> I've seen it so many times. It was a comfort movie for a while. Like, if I was having a bad week at work, I would just, like, throw Spinal Tap on because it was, you know, I could kind of just turn my brain off and just laugh. Yeah, I absolutely would, would recommend it and have recommended it to multiple people over the years <laughs> who, you know, then subsequently it becomes one of their favorite films. Uh, in terms of extra credit... Do you have we always like to sort of suggest a film that if people enjoy this, you know, they should check out something that would make for a nice double feature. Does anything come to mind? I think for me, there's so many to choose from now because this is kind of one of the formats that you see for comedy all the time. So just this year, we had theater camp, which I really enjoyed. Um, oh, is that good? I, I've been wanting to watch it. We just haven't gotten around yeah, to it. But I, it seems like something that would be my kind of Totally, totally. It, it is definitely in the sort of Christopher Guest mold, I would say. For example, this has no interviews. It has no camera crew or director as part of the, the movie. But it is shot in this okay. style. And it very much follows the Christopher Guest sort of formula of like, there's a big show and they're preparing for the big show. Right. But I did think that, like, the music is really funny. It, it also has a lot of, like, laughs per minute, you know, in the sense of right. just constantly pumping out really funny gags and without the kind of jokiness of that, that, like, you talked about a little bit with Best in Show of just kind of, like, right. these aren't real people. Like, all the characters in theater camp do feel like real people who just have foibles and there's a lot of heart to it too again it's it's clearly made by people who really value theater but also value that sort of like experience of being a theater kid and going <laughs> to camps and going right. to, to schools that sort of are these weird social spaces i guess often run yeah. by people who went through them themselves and like never quite, <laughs> quite got away so it's yep. I, I would definitely check that out the other sort of contemporary piece of media that it reminded me of a lot was Jury Duty. Have you heard about this show? I've heard. I, oh, this is yeah. another. It's been on my watch list, but I haven't watched it yet. <laughs> but I hear it is just absolutely hysterical. I loved it. I thought it was great. Yeah. Essentially, the premise for anyone who haven't, hasn't heard about it is a mockumentary style thing, much more in the spirit of this in the sense that there are actually interviews with the characters and that kind of thing. However, there is one person in the cast who is not in on the joke. <laughs> and actually thinks that he is going to jury duty and they're producing a sort of groundbreaking documentary because typically you're not allowed to film during a court case. And he's just participating in this. And so all of the other people are acting around him and have to maintain a sense of reality so that he doesn't catch on that this is a, sort of a big elaborate ruse. So it's this constant balance of they're trying to kind of make funny things happen while also trying to ensure that he still believes that, that this is all real. That's and, really, and the, the really other thing clever. about it that I'll say is uh, for anyone who's like, uh, that sounds like kind of a mean joke. It manages to walk a really delicate line. That's not the right. <laughs> it strikes thin. a very delicate balance. There we go. It's, it never feels like it's a joke on him. And actually it, I think right. he's really treated quite well in the, in the show. 
it's a really really enjoyable watch and you'll just absolutely fly through it and also the craft of how they managed to create this whole structure around this one person and create branching scripts where they're able to accommodate how he's going to react and bring him back to the core story is pretty incredible it's just such a feat of producing really that's super Um, cool and then the one that i've already mentioned is get back i mean again (laughs) it's kind of falls into the category of like this is real but it it also has moments that are so ridiculous i feel like they even maybe have a character that is kind of like the manager character who's always trying to Mm -hmm. kind of like accommodate them and figure out like how to make all this stuff happen but yeah the main thing is the planning for this concert that they're trying to figure out where at various points they think that they're going to be in Roman ruins. Someone suggests the Tate gallery. Someone suggests an airport. Someone suggests an, an orphanage and someone even suggests the house of parliament. <laughs> Jesus. Ugh. So it has that sort of balance of absurdity and pretension at times that uh, feels very at home in spinal tap. So. I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, for me, I would suggest, I mean, we obviously talked about the Christopher Guest films. I would say specifically A Mighty Wind Mm. feels like a great companion piece because it's like a music documentary. It's about a faux band and they're, I I believe the conceit is that they're getting together for a reunion concert or something. I haven't seen it in like over a decade, but I remember I did really like that one and it it felt the most like Spinal Tap. And again, it reunites the three guys. But the the film that I would re- recommend over that, if I were to only recommend one, and Marco, I'm I'm assuming you've seen it because it sounds like it's up your alley, and I don't know if you've seen this, Nate, is Anvil, the story oh, yeah. of Anvil, because <laughs> because that yeah. is basically like watching a real yeah. life Spinal Tap. Like it's when I saw it for the first time, I was convinced it was a mockumentary, and, I, and in fact, I'm pretty sure Bill, our friend who I introduced Spinal Tap to, he was like, Adam, you have to watch this movie. I was like texting him I'm like this is a joke right like the, and he's like no like this is a real band <laughs> these guys are real with dozens of albums <laughs> like yeah. yeah yeah like and I don't want to spoil anything but it's like if you want to see the real life spinal tap search out Anvil the story of Anvil it, it is equal parts hilarious and heartfelt and very sweet and again I don't think they're ever like the filmmakers aren't making yeah. fun of these guys but there is definitely this sort of air of like they're almost they're kind of unbelievable. It's it's an outstanding, outstanding. Movie, and they're Canadian. So. They are Canadian. And they're Canadian. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I was going to put that on my list. But one thing I just wanted to say is what Nate said, this idea that they're never making fun of the character in jury duty. Is that what it's called? Jury? Yeah. And I think that's what's really important about Spinal Tap is that the joke is never at the expense of someone else or other people. It's always kind of at the expense of themselves. And they know that they're doing it to themselves. And it's not like the Peter Sellers God film or something where you're like making fun (laughs) of something. They're always bringing it back to themselves that they are the outliers in these situations and they're the ridiculous ones and i think that's super important for a film like this and then okay so to that point i'm gonna go from a couple of fictional films through something that's fiction mockumentary into two documentaries i just like immediately like blast it off so here's some good ones uh wayne's world 2 specifically wayne's world 2 because that's when they try to put on the concert and wayne like sees jim morrison (laughs) and goes on those like um, quests through the the desert with him 
And again, it kind of like speaks to the pretension of like rock music in general. Uh, then I would go with The Dirt, which is the story of Motley Crue, um, which like right. that's the Netflix. The Nef- it's show it's a movie. Or? It's just like an hour and forty five okay. minutes or yeah, two yeah. hours. Uh, it doesn't really show how awful they were as much as it could have because these guys suck but there's something about that movie and like again I know this is going to sound wild but Machine Gun Kelly is in this movie as Tommy Lee and he is so good at playing that character that again <laughs> you you lose yourself in his performance then I'm going to go with Bill and Ted which also kind oh, of pulls out some okay. of that kind of like 80s metal thing and makes it kind of like again it's never at the expense of Bill and Ted. It's not like it's making fun of them because they get A's on their project. So it's awesome. And then my Canadian connection is FUBAR. Oh, uh, yeah. Like, it's a mockumentary. It's about metalheads, about Heshers in particular. It definitely takes from that kind of Christopher Guest spinal tap thing. Then for two documentaries, again, I mentioned the decline of Western civilization films, which I think are awesome. There's one, two, and three. One and three are about punk. Two is about metal. I would seek them all out. They are some of my favorite films. And finally, my biggest recommendation, I can't believe I didn't say this immediately, is a film that is a documentary but has its own spinal tappiness, Some Kind of Monster, the Metallica documentary when they're making Saint Anger. Yeah, that's the like three-hour <laughs> one, yeah, it's right? Like two and a half, three hours of them just fighting and arguing <laughs> and yeah, it's the thing where they're like with this, um, the psychologist or the counselor who tries to like get them to like each other again. But there's like <laughs> there's moments in that film where literally it says like days recording 863 oh. and you're like, what the hell? Like there's no way this is real. This is ridiculous. They've spent like, you know, $2 million on therapy, like $8 million, and then it's St. Anger, and that's what comes out of it. And there's this amazing scene late in the film after the f- album has been recorded. This isn't a spoiler. It's St. Anger. But there's just, like, a group of journalists <laughs> listening to it, and the looks on their faces is, like, you can't, like, there's no way professional actors can make those looks of disdain and disappointment that those people make in that moment and again to bring it kind of full circle you mentioned how they had those 18 inch long boxes uh so there's like (laughs) shots of people going at midnight to buy the black album when it comes out none more black right like to buy the (laughs) black album and they all came in those stupid long boxes (laughs) it's a tape so it's this big, and it's like a 12-inch. Yeah. And the reason they actually did that, I don't know if people know this. I don't know if you two know this. But the reason long boxes existed in those stupid long plastic things is because when vinyl first left stores, they had these really tall, long 12-inch things where vinyl used to be kept. Mm. And so those were supposed to mimic the size of a record so that they didn't have right. to change that makes everything. Sense. But yeah, Some Kind of Monster, I think, is my number one double bill recommendation because the audacity of Metallica to act the way they do in that movie. It covers Napster. It covers them finding Rob Trujillo. Just thinking about it makes me laugh because they take themselves so seriously. And this is everything Spinal Tap fought against. And so, um, yeah, if you're going to do a double bill, good thing Spinal Tap's 82 minutes because then you get two and a half hours of Metallica bickering about drum sounds and, and about how much they dislike each other. So, yeah, it's not as long as Get Back, but it's up there. That sounds perfect. 
And it's made by the Paradise Lost definitely, films, yeah. which is wild. <laughs> yeah, so it's like it's like a legitimate documentary bona fides, <laughs> and they're making a Metallica. And I think doc, something so. at the beginning is like we were supposed to be with them for three months. We were there for two years, and you know, again, that kind of stuff where it's just like again taking itself so seriously, and you're like. It's fucking sane anger. <laughs> yeah. like, Even the documentary is taking itself seriously. Oh, yeah, totally too seriously. And oh, wow. I, yeah, I, I, I think it's amazing. Amazing. Well, I'm going to add that to my watch list and try and find some time to watch that. <laughs> well, on that note, folks, I think our episode is probably the length of three viewings of it's Spinal as long Tap. As, uh, so, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You should probably just listen to our podcast. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know what? We got a real banger for you next time because on the next episode of the Springfield Googleplex, we will be watching Police Academy. Nate is yeah. going to force me through this. And hey, look, um, it's interesting because The Simpsons has never parodied Police Academy, but they talk about it all the damn time. Again, it's one of the most popular movies of the year we just talked about, 1984. Yeah. Never seen it, and I don't know anyone yeah. who's seen it, but it was a big thing. They made like 10 of them, so uh, they we'll sure did. Into that. Bobcat Goldway. We'll find out who makes Steve Gutenberg a star. <laughs> I'm not looking forward to it, and whenever Nate has a lot of glee to watch a bad movie <laughs> on this program... I always end up wanting to quit the show. <laughs> well, so, that's where my glee comes um, from. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, exactly. The hope, the so, hope that you'll um, quit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the bar was set very low with Day of the Dolphins, so um, we'll see. That's we'll true. see. I mean, Maybe, hopefully that this is more George like Scott, Paint Your but... Wagon and less like Day of the Dolphin. I, by well, the way, I tip my hat to you two for watching Paint, <laughs> paint My Wagon because... <laughs> God, that is rough. <laughs> You're heroes in my books. <laughs> yes. Well, it was a movie that I forced Nate to watch with me, even though we don't live in the same country. We figured out a way to do it because I was like, I will not sit through this movie otherwise. I thought it was so, hilarious. Um, I, en- I actually enjoyed yeah. watching it, but... <laughs> Yes, well, you're you're a I'm a, I'm a sick puppy. Yes. So anyway, yeah. Until then, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpsons fans. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review and share this episode with the Simpson fans and film buffs in your life. Marco, thank you so much yeah, for joining us. We had so much yeah, fun chatting with you. It's it's so nice to have someone who like actually knows what they're talking about on this show instead of us <laughs> yucks. Um is there anything you want to plug before we go? God, no. <laughs> I'm a dumb student, man. Teacher. No, I actually do write for Exclaim Magazine. I do movie reviews and music reviews and a lot of uh, like metal and punk stuff. So uh, Spinal Tap Light, I guess. <laughs> so if you ever want to read some of the other stuff I write, some reviews on movies and records and concerts and you know interviews, please check me out on Exclaim. I have a Twitter. It's my full name, which no one can spell. Barely I can spell it. It's Marco, M-A-R-K-O dot Jurgic, D-J-U-R, D-J-I-C. Check it out if you feel so inclined. And thank you, too, for having me on the show. It was really fun. Uh, I had a great time. It was a blast having you, man. Cheers. Thank thank you you. so much. And on that note, Nate, until next time, we will... See you around the Plex. See you around the Plex. (laughs) 
I don't think we've ever gone less than two hours. But uh, no. so yeah, I hope you don't have plans, Marco. If you need to take a pee break, it's You're fine. Looking at him. You're yeah, looking it, at him. it's fine. It's fine. Three hours later. Three twenty nine twenty, which I think is the new I record. So. That's gonna be fun to edit. Good night, Springton. There will be no encores. <laughs> <laughs>